Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. The Carl Nelson Show. And Grand Rising Wake Up Squad, and thanks for starting your week with us. Later, author, attorney, and reparations advocate, Nkichi Taifa will take over our classroom. Attorney Taifa will report on the recent reparations conference in Ghana. Attorney Taifa will also provide a national reparations update. But before uh, Attorney Taifa, award-winning video photographer Jeffrey Nichols will reminisce on the release of Nelson Mandela. That was uh, 34 years ago on Sunday. But to get us started... Banking and financial expert Donald Parker is here. Hold on a second, Donald. Let me bring in uh, Kevin for a second here. Good morning, Kevin. Good morning, Carl Nelson. Good morning, Donnell. Hey, man. Uh, it was a late, late Super Bowl last night, so I yes, might be for us. slow to the trigger over here today. <laughs> All right. I, I understand. But you know what the, the people are talking about, and we'll get Donnell to chime in on this as well, the halftime show, because there was a section of it that he fizzled. You know, if you read the white press, they say how awful it was and all of that. But if you, you primarily on the black press, they found out, you know, black consumers thought it was pretty good. What, what do you say? Well, I'm just disappointed that he did a movie. It was like, you know, and, and it makes sense. I mean, he's got a residency out in Las Vegas and he wants to make sure that it invites people in. So it looked like a well-produced commercial and uh, but I liked the show. I did. I, I I just you know Michael Jackson was live. Prince was live. The Rolling Stones were live. Bruno Mars was live. And it's like a, a live performance is way different, man. Because you know you got to turn the mistakes into art. But when it's a movie, you you know you put that art on the floor. When it's a mistake, you can do it over. Okay, you know take two. It was good to see Alicia Keys. Haven't seen her in a while, and it was also great. To see Ludacris and Lil Wayne had on the right kind of makeup. He looked pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Well, let me ask you this, though, because you, you mentioned Alicia Keys, and some people were upset with with uh, the combo with Alicia Keys. Uh, they thought, you know, they, she's married. You know, we shouldn't have been all over her like that. You know, that was, I'm just reading some of the comments. Oh, well, wow. How do you see? What do you just do? It, was it just theatrical? It was just, it, it was just, you know, it, it's just a show. Yeah, that's how yeah. I saw it. Yeah, that's how I saw it. That was theatrical. That was uh, Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire. That was when Michael Jackson danced with the lady. It's um, Peaches and Herb. It's it was. You need that in a show. You know, you need the the tense, the intensity of that. Those uh, electric moments that. Uh, romance brings and it was a romantic song and i i just think again they're doing a las vegas style show and so yeah. that that's that las vegas stuff right there but they didn't and, bring and, you know the other thing they heads. talked about too kevin is the fact that there were no gratuitous uh white performers in in the show that's maybe why they weren't of, <laughs> in usher's show <laughs> yes I bet you that's why maybe some of the white folks are upset because they didn't see a, a bieber or who else uh What's the other one, the other rapper out of Detroit? Eminem? Um, 
I mean, yeah, they didn't see they had them in, in in the cast, and so maybe that's why it provoked them to you know see all of them. Because to me, it was kind of soulful. The the, yeah. the whole production. I don't know if you saw the pregame and all of that, we, and, and especially the Black National Anthem. It was it was kind of soulful. Uh, you know, yeah, uh, the lady from uh, yeah, the lady from the movie about Billie Holiday sang the Black National Anthem, and, yeah. and uh, yeah, I thought that was pretty nice. Uh, you know, I recognized her immediately from the Billie Holiday movie, and that was her claim to fame. But is she from America? Isn't she from England? You know, I don't know. I don't know her background, but I know somebody out there will know. But you know, what, what interested me was when the when they did the Star Spangled Banner and the announcer goes, and now our, and he put the emphasis on our national anthem, you know, just to say, that's theirs, but this is our, to sing our national anthem. I'm like, okay, I, I feel, I hear the emphasis, dude, I get it. <laughs> I don't know if everybody else saw it, felt that way too, but, you know, I get it, because I was wondering how he was going to, you know, because they, they use these subtleties. And you got to listen very keenly and right. pick up what, what, what they're trying to do and what they're trying to tell us. Yeah, that was code for keep standing. Don't get on your <laughs> knees. Keep standing. This right. Our national anthem. Yeah. Our. Na- I mean, he put the emphasis on our national anthem. Okay, dude, I got it. <laughs> you know, yes. that was interesting. But you know what? Let's bring Donnell in here. Donnell, good morning. What do you think? Good morning, Kevin. Good morning, Carl. Thanks for having me on your show. Hey, now. What do you think? think? Well, before I I give my opinion, these um, statements are not part of the private corporation, the Federal Reserve, the Department of Treasury, the Office of Comptroller of the Currency, or the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. These comments are my own comments, projection analysis. Now, what I did not watch the full game. I did watch the halftime show. But just hearing the comments that you and Kevin talked about this morning, this is the elephant in the room in America, from slavery into now, we are in chaos with race relationships and um, or race relations in America. Um, the, the how that certain people feel like they were represented, um, we feel like that every day in America. Um, when we look at Usher, Usher is not a crossover artist as much as Michael Jackson. So when Michael Jackson right, yeah. sings a song, everyone knows Michael Jackson. Um, so do we have an artist like that today outside of Beyonce and maybe, um, a few others, but Usher is a main artist and a lot of people felt left out because they didn't know the words. If you don't know the words, you felt like, okay, everybody else dancing, but I'm not participating, but just how African-Americans would feel or Hispanics would feel if Garth Brooks would sing a song or have the whole show himself. So it just, this is show that America still struggle with diversity. It still struggle with race relations, and when you read the movie, the book, the um, um, the, the um, an, an American Dilemma, it talks about that since the 1920s and 1940s, we still gonna had a systemic issue with race relations in this country. I believe that young white America recognizes Usher. He wouldn't be able to get a residency if it was, you know, catered to an all black audience, and uh, you know, having done bar mitzvahs myself you know we've done many of us your songs they're, they're big hits and so uh i don't know why there wasn't an, any white performance. Well, hold on a second kevin you're sharing a, uh, some information you do bar mitzvahs so yeah man I've been, at the selection of a long time bro i know but who who selected what, what is it the the the, the 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 i guess the honoree or the parents who selects the music that you do yeah 
um, you just go down the list of hits. You, you, no, you know. no, but who's sele- who's decided we want a black person in a bar mitzvah? Oh, the parents, you know. The parents. Oh, they okay. go to the agency, they look at the video, you know, and uh, most of the time agency bands are, are diversified anyway, you know, half and half, anyway. Uh, you know, on that vein, too, uh, you know, because uh, uh, this is something that uh, Donnell mentioned. Beyonce announced she's doing a country album. So, it, that you know, we talked about what's crossover, and, he t- and uh, Donnell mentioned Michael Jackson was a crossover. White folks accepted him. He was non-threatening. He was, you know, he was close to them and looks and all that kind of nonsense. That's why he's probably non-threatening. But you have a, a super melanated brother or sister up there. That's a threat. So I'm just wondering for, for both of you, how do you think this country album, regardless of, of the quality of the music that Beyonce is going to do, because, you know, she's, she's closer to them, too. She's melanin or trying to be melanin challenging. Uh, forgive me if I'm being uh, objective or not objective on this, but <laughs> how do you how do you fellas think that will that will go over? Donnell, Carl, I'll take it, Carl. Um, I think it'll do well. Beyonce have a lot of followers, like Taylor Swift have followers. I think they call them the um, the bees or whatever. So yeah. the bees will buy the album, and after two weeks, they'll probably say good or bad. But then you also have a new audience, country singers, will probably like her first two songs. Her songs can be well-written and very programmed musically that the, the country uh, followers, you know, followers will buy her album just to try it out. So I think it would do well because it would be a great marketing scheme and she have a great voice and it would be a great production. I agree that it, it will do well. I just don't understand why you've got to categorize it as country uh, when the Commodores did Sail On Down the Line, straight-up country song, um, Lady, straight-up country song, and uh, and they didn't call it country. It was just a song on their album, you know, sort of thing. And so I think that her saying, I'm going to do a country album, puts a bullseye on her back. So we're going to, it better be, like you're right, it better be good. It better be well-produced. Do you see what I mean? I Will Always Love You by Whitney Houston was written by, Dolly Parton. So it started off as a country song, but Whitney didn't say, now I'm going to do a country song. So I think this whole categorization of it is some sort of marketing ploy. Yeah, that's interesting, Kevin, that you say that, because, you know, people say the blues music, you talk to a music historian, Bill Comden, says the blues music and country music are basically the same thing. It's just same different people yeah, singing different versions. As a musician, is that how you see it too? Yeah, I think it's you know, the difference between a banjo and a violin, <laughs> an electric guitar versus acoustic guitar. You create the sound that you want, and you add one of those Hawaiian guitars in there, get that twang, and, and you're good. Do like Reba McIntyre when she was singing the Star Spangled Banner, put that drawl in there. <laughs> yeah. That was funny yeah. when she did that. Let me ask uh, 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 Donnell this, because you know we're talking about money. Well, we're going to talk about money. Usher wasn't paid, he got zero. Was it worth it for him to do the halftime show without getting a check? Yes, it, it was well worth it because so many other audience who don't know Usher probably sitting there wondering, why everybody dancing? I'm not dancing. He must be a great artist. Usher's going to make way more money by people going back, buying his downloads or buying his album than actually, you know, um, being on, um, getting paid to do that. So usually what happened, I found out that record companies pay the Super Bowl um, to have the artist there because they know they're going to get kickback sales afterwards because you have the greatest exposure on the planet, the Super Bowl. More people watch the Super Bowl 
than any other event usually uh, every year. So because he was actually performing, the people who do not know Usher or wasn't exposed to Usher would go back and listen to old albums and, and songs to buy his stuff so he can make his record company and himself can make money off of that afterwards. And similarly, he is he does have a residency in Las Vegas, so that'll also fill up the room. It's so, over. So that's it's, a, it's that, over. A, yeah, that's a, his residency. His residency is over. He's going on tour now. Oh, it is over. Oh, yeah, he's on tour. Yeah, and he's got a new album coming out My bad. as well. Yeah. So, you know, so it, uh, I guess the timing is everything. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and, and whilst we were all doing that, they're still bombing Rafa. <laughs> Just let's, let's not forget what's going on in the yeah. so-called Middle East. Well, it's Go 13 minutes at the top. Yeah, uh, fellas, we got to take a short break. We come back. Let's talk some money with Darnell. Family, you want to join this conversation with Darnell Parker? Reach out to us at 800-450-7876. And we'll take your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. And in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, information. His power. And good morning once again, family. 20 minutes after the top of the hour with a banking and financial expert, Donald Parker. We started off talking about sports. And by the way, I got a tweet from one of our listeners on the continent. I'm not sure which country the person's in, but he says, well, you guys were watching the Super Bowl. We were watching the African Cup of Nations. Ivory Coast beat Nigeria 2-1. to one and soccer game, and it's played every four years. It's, it's like the Olympics, and it goes on to say the Cote d'Ivoire, the Ivory Coast, they've, they've invested a billion dollars into this contest, building new stadiums. So it was a kind of, it's kind of like the Olympics, but it's soccer, and it was won by uh, Cote d'Ivoire, the Ivory Coast, 2-1 over Nigeria. Anyway, uh, if, if, unless you're on a rock, you know, like Kansas City uh, beat the 49ers in overtime 25-22. And Darnell, I, during the game, they showed the, the NFL head of the NFL, uh, Roger Goodell, meeting with Taylor Swift, and they were talking about how much money the uh, Taylor Swift has, has brought to the game, to the NFL. Do you, th- you think this is going to be a marketing tool going out from here on out? Yes, Carl. This is a marketing tool going into the offseason. Now, we have to understand um, the NFL is a corporation. It's a nonprofit corporation. It should be a profit corporation, but that's another story we can talk about later. Now, we know that the NFL wasn't going to let San Francisco win because the quarterback of San Francisco is Purdy. Now, we know that Mahomes is the face of the NFL. Now, Mahomes has three um, Super Bowls. Uh, We understand the power of three. Now, the last Super Bowls, that was one, last three Super Bowls won by three points. And the power of three is adding up again. So, Kansas City player that was wearing the number three actually ran on the field and got injured. This is unbelievable. Um, We can't make this stuff up. Um, if you want to be entertained, you got to catch on what signal they are, are sending us. So even that was a signal that uh, Kansas City was going to win a Super Bowl um, because they won last night, Kansas City 25, San Francisco 22. Again, the last three games was last Super Bowl was won by three points. And then when you look at Lamar Jackson, who is the NFL two-time MVP, you didn't see any commercials of Lamar Jackson last night. We are going to see... Patrick Mahomes, Taylor Swift, Kevin Kelsey, marriage, relationship, um, love story carried on in offseason. The NFL would make money off of movies, license, and other products and marketing using those two um, love stories or stories into the offseason. 
Well, speaking about options, how much money do you think the NFL will make after the Super Bowl? Because they're already making money before. How much money do you think they, this is, they, they're going to go in their coffers? I would say with the movie deal itself, I would say that's going to be over $40 million. Uh, $40 million more than if Purdy would have, if, if San Francisco would have won, that would have been $40 million they did not, uh, was not going to get from the movie deal. Just the movie deal and other marketing tools they, can, they have in their place and license. I would guarantee over $40 million by um, Kansas City beating San Francisco easily. And, and, the, and the next issue is they're trying to, um, you know, uh, globalize the, the NFL. As you know, games are already played in London and, and in uh, Germany, and now they think about Spain. And if you saw the halftime show where they're trying to get into Africa with, uh, with this, this, this football, is the people, you know, overseas people call it American football because they, they consider soccer football. So they're looking at, they're playing the long game as far as the money's concerned. Is that how you see it as well? Yes, Carl. Um, the New World Order already stated that the projected Super Bowl of 59 is going to be the last Super Bowl as we see it after today. We're going into the fourth industrial revolution in 2025 to 2026. The New World Order will flip the script into the fourth industrial revolution. In other words, move the world into the fourth world uh, revolution. So we have to enjoy the Super Bowl as it is today um, and in 2025. Uh, but in 2026, we will see um, different, um, a different form of a Super Bowl compared to as we see it today. Yeah, because there's already bids going up who's going to broadcast the Super Bowl. But, but you mentioned the fourth industrial revolution, Donnell, and some folks are probably hearing you for the first time don't understand what that terminology is. Can you break it down for us? McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. So when you look at America's history, we had an industrial revolution. Now we go into the fourth industrial revolution. In the fourth industrial revolution, we're going to use technology to improve processes, systems, um, and we're going to have inventory ran by AI and other software. We're going to have drones and robots do some jobs that Americans used to do, from delivering, from um, making um, clothes, uh, folding clothes, dry cleaning. Um, robots and computers and machines is going to do everything, I mean, not everything, a lot of things that Americans used to do by hand. Um, a lot of things going to be done by um, technology. So in other words, here's a prime example. The people who order Uber, you know, you can have, you know, the car, self-driving car who drives itself, pay its own car insurance using crypto or um or, you know, fiat money through uh, technology so you don't have to actually have a human driving a car. 
You have robots that's made by Tesla that can fold clothes. You have automated um, dry cleaning machines. You put the clean, um, you close in it, it dry cleans within um, 30 minutes. You can come back to a dry cleaner in 30 minutes compared to waiting a day or two. So there's a lot of technology that's going to be used to eliminate jobs. Now, on TV, people have to understand. They're going to say, well, this technology is not going to eliminate your job. Yes, technology will eliminate a lot of jobs, but not every job. Some jobs will actually move into uh, more of a streamlined process. So instead of doing like the manual work, you have to manage the robot or the systems or the technology. So you're pretty much sitting back monitoring everything, make sure everything is okay, faster and more efficient. Is this the same as the digital uh, revolution that we're talking about, Donnell? Well, yes, but when you want to talk candidly, it's, a, it's called the fourth industrial revolution. So having said that, if uh, we've got some college students or listening to high school students and looking at the future, what sort of advice would you have for them? Because obviously the, this is going to disrupt the, uh, the employment schedule, the professional, for people who are looking for work or looking for jobs, and everybody can't start their own business. So what, do you, what, do you, what, what advice would you have for them? Uh, I always advise people to look at STEM um, technology, STEM um, careers, science, technology, engineering, math, um, especially focused on computers, from programming, from cybersecurity, um, and also in the medical field, uh, stay focused on nursing because we have a, um, an aging population in America and across the world. Um, I, I believe nurses and um, LPNs will still be needed in the future. All right, I got to ask you this because you mentioned the fourth industrial revolution. As it started, are we close to it, or when are we going to see it? How do you see it? Oh, it started. Um, we see it already. When you use your uh, phone for payments and transactions, it started when, you, when we went from check to use credit cards. That was part of the fourth industrial revolution, but people don't pick up. In America, it moved a lot slower. If you go to China, they're using your face to, to make payments. They're using your hand to make payments. In America, change management is more harder, so they're giving it to us slowly compared to other countries. They're just rolling it out immediately because people don't know what we know by using checks or going to a branch. Some people never even had a payment system, so they're actually using their face and hand or their phone immediately, and that's something new to them compared to us writing checks or paying cash. Um, It's going on now. It's it's moving slowly. As a matter of fact, Carl, there is a thing going on on social media, on the Internet right now. Uh, Barry White, back in 1983, did an interview um, talking about technology was going to replace human beings in the future. Unless you know how to program a computer or how to fix a computer, you're going to be in trouble. Now, Barry even stated how, in 1983, how the industry is changing by using technology studios in L.A. was going out of business every day in Hollywood and technology was these big studios are going from a large studio to a small space. And Barry even stated back in 1983 that no one is going to escape uh, what is about to happen upon us. And these are his direct comments. And I was like, you know, he, he had the foresight or someone gave him the foresight to talk about technology and the uh, fourth industrial revolution that was coming upon us. Wow, that's interesting. That's Barry White, the singer, right? Yeah, Barry White, the singer, and his main concern was a lot of African Americans and Hispanic schools did not even have a one computer in 1983. 
And I know some colleges that, that, that didn't have a computer in 1983. <laughs> wow. Because you know what? Back in 83, back then, he, he spent a lot of time in our newsroom. He'd just come out and, and hang out because he figured you guys get the news before anybody else. And we, you know, we talk politics and sports. And so I, when he said that, I was like, hmm, I wonder how much of those conversations that we were having back then. Because when he said Barry White, I go, Barry White. Because he was a regular in, in our newsroom back then. But I, I got to ask you, though, the, this this fourth industrial revolution that, that you say now we're embarking on, that's, is there somebody somewhere, someplace uh, that are pulling the strings, that are pushing it and, and, and directing it, or is it just taking place organically? No, it's, it's a group of countries. It's a group of people. Um, when you look at the G7, the G20, the IMF, the World Bank, um, the World Economic Forum, um, a lot of countries, the Federal Reserve, the central banks, they want to improve processes. They want to improve the climate in, a, in, in the world. They want to give everyone, allegedly, financial inclusion into the payment system so that everyone has access to capital, access to the banking system. But as we know, they're going to give us free money to get your information. And 29 away from the top. Yeah. So who are these folks who, who are making these moves that affect everybody else on the planet? Is it G7? Is the Committee of 300? The Club of Rome? Who, who, who are these folks who are doing this? Well, it's, some people call them the global elite. Um, some people say the major corporations. Um, when you read the book, Committee 300, it's, it spells out different organizations like the Trilateral Commission and who, what family makes up certain things. But um, that book is kind of slightly outdated, but it gives you a framework that those families are still involved. But also, we have to take in consideration other families were added since then. I do not have those names, but I would probably say that um, it's more of a cooperation of um, corporations um, globally across the world, not just those families that listed in that book. All right, 29 or from top of Having said that, though, there's, right now there's a global debt problem, uh, Darnell. Is, is, was this created? Do they create these? Do they manufacture all these issues? Or, or is it, again, does it happen organically? Well, it's manufactured because the capital system does not work. Um, you had um, a debate between Kisney and other economists saying that capitalism only works until the American people find out it doesn't work for them. When you can't just keep printing money and keep printing supply, making the rich richer and the corporations more powerful than the American people. And it's, and it's an offset that sooner or later, a new system had to be created to control the supply chain. But at the same time, as we've seen over the years, what people say, you have to control, if you control the supply, you have to control the population as well. So even in China, they came out of rule that you're only going to have one child. So um, you're going to start seeing um, population um, conversations in the next two to three years in order to control the supply. All right. Speaking about supply, we've got to take a short break. When we come back, though, I understand that the United States is now the world's number one supply of oil. Uh, first, where, where did that come from? How, would the, uh, how do we uh, outpace the Saudis? 
What does this mean for the global economy? Not just for the economy here. And there's so many questions I ask you about this. Is this political? It's move there that we're pumping more oil out in, in, in more than anybody else in the world. And who knew? Is this the reserves? Is, is Biden tapping into the reserves? So I'll let you answer all those questions when we get back. But we got to take a short break, family. Twenty six minutes away from the top there with our guest. He's a banking and financial expert. His name is Don L. Parker. You can reach him at 800-450-7876. And we'll take your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB and in the DMV or on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL, where information is power. And good morning, family. 22 minutes away from the top of the hour with our guest. He's banking and financial expert. His name is Donnell Parker. We're talking about money. Reach out to us if you want to join the conversation at 800-450-7876. Before we go back to him, just to remind you, later this morning, we're going to speak with author, attorney, and reparations advocate, Sister Nkichi Taifa is going to give us an update on reparations. Also, video photographer Jeffrey Nichols will be here. He's going to rem- reminisce on the release of Nelson Mandela. He was there 34 years ago on Sunday. And later this week, you're going to hear from the President General of the Universal African People's Organization, Brother Zaki Brudy, based in St. Louis. Also, metaphysician Dr. B will join us, and chemitologist Tony Browder will also be here. So, if you're in Baltimore, make sure your radio's locked in tight on 1010 WOLB. If you're in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOLB. All right, Donnell, the, the fact that uh, this country now, the U.S., is now producing more oil than Sa- the Saudis or anybody else, the number one oil producer, first, I didn't know we had the, all, all that oil. And two, what is the reason behind this? Is this political? Is this to keep the economy afloat or is this to counter what, what the Saudis are doing? How do you see it? Well, um, Carl, I'm not sure if it's oil. I believe it's gas, natural gas. They became the number one producer. But if it's oil, um, I need to go back and look at that. Um, but as a former resident in the state of Texas, I remember back in 2014 and 2016, U.S. energy companies have built seven large facilities in Texas, Louisiana, Maryland, and Georgia. And actually, um, three of those states I lived in the metropolitan area of those states. <laughs> so since they built these large facilities, part of it to me is the energy companies got, got to make their money back. They have to sell natural gas to make their money back. Because if we move straight directly into the fourth industrial revolution and get off of oil and natural gas and use other um, energy sources, um, those companies are going to lose money on those seven large facilities. And we also have to consider, Carl, um, there had been a war in Ukraine, and Eastern European depends on Russia for natural gas. And the number one um, um, export for United States to, um, for natural gas has been Europe because of the conflict of Russia. So Europe is the number one buyer for natural gas in America, and other countries is follow suit. So that's one of the reasons that we are producing more natural gas today is because of the conflict with Ukraine and Russia. All right, and this is a question. Last time you were on, and somebody texted, but you you had already left about uh, um, automobiles. You know, uh, the, the yeah. gas list. Yeah. Uh, it, does this have anything to do? Because, again, the political question, because Biden has been pushing uh, these EV, uh, uh, these electric uh, vehicles. Is that the reason why he's turned on the tap, to, you know, to support his, his move or is this something else? Well, if you go back to the climate, you know, discussion with Al Gore, um, we have to recognize as human beings that we have too much carbon emission on the planet. 
And, you know, growing up in, you know, the automobile area or um, a city that you can smell the pollution in the air when you work in a manufacturing city. So over the years, we have to recognize that we have to make change from a electronic vehicle or a hydrogen car. It doesn't matter who's in administration. We have to make changes on the planet from recycling and making changes how we use energy, a more smarter way to use energy. So Biden actually um, or any president would have to compete with, you know, China. Uh, BYD and Tesla is going neck and neck to try to see what do consumers like, what do uh, consumers want as an EV car. And there is an issue with EV batteries worldwide, uh, but China is not – or the BYD company is not showing as many issues as Tesla because they have different energy sources to use their batteries, and their batteries are a lot smaller um, than the EVs that we use here in America from Tesla. So there is going to be a issue if you buy an EV car to get the battery fixed in a timely manner compared to BYD, a China-made product. Yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong here, 18 away from the top, the, the, the proponents, the components to make up the batteries come from Africa. Can the African states leverage this, the fact that they're the only ones or, the, or could have them, I guess, the minerals to make the, the batteries? Can they leverage themselves to get in a better economic position? You only can leverage if you have a military. As we've seen for the past 50 years, that nations been going to Africa, stripping their natural resources, using military force. If they don't, if Africa do not have a military force or use a another country to back them as a military, um, like the BRIC nation, um, no, you, you don't have any leverage. Pretty much, there's no leverage. Okay. All right. Let's, let's talk about this, though. This because you know all of this is just a ripple effect, and and you've you've taught us this uh, since you've been on here that everything's connected and we look at the real estate market in in this country we, they look at the major cities and they're just this just goo gobs of empty office space you know it's big skyscrapers you go over to new york or, or chicago or even la and some of these uh, all these office spaces are empty what's going on here are people still affected by the pandemic are they not returning back to their offices Yes, Carl. A lot of corporations and um, some government agencies still have telework policies and procedures that people can work from home. Um, a lot of commercial properties are still empty, um, and they're not getting the full payment. So there's an article stating that um, over 50 percent of commercial properties today is underwater. So the amount they owe on that commercial loan is more than what the appraisal value of that commercial property. So it's, it's about to hit the fan when you look at the global debt. All these countries are in debt. These commercial properties are in debt. Sooner or later, this collapse had to happen in order to um, bring a, a, a true valuation of commercial properties and real estate properties across the world. So something is about to hit the fan soon, very soon. So are we talking about a global reset here? Yes. Some people use the word global reset, a global correction in order to make the emerging markets more stronger. And the United States dollar um, will have to adjust to make it more competitive with other currencies. And, and Donnell, you're familiar with San Francisco. What's going on in San Francisco? We keep hearing that the, it's almost a ghost town. Well, 
<laughs> and mm, so I was in San Francisco recently. Um, it's a ghost town compared to the history, what you know of, of San Francisco. But um, a lot of banks, um, there's um, a couple of banks headquartered um, in San Francisco, uh, or they have offices, not really headquartered, but they all have offices in San Francisco. They actually um, are bringing some of the employees back. So it's not as much ghost town as it was. Um, two years ago during the pandemic. Some some employees are coming back um, to downtown San Francisco, but it is less crowded than it used to be. Now, you have a high homeless rate from the financial district into city center into a city a place called Tenderloin. Um, in that area, you see more people that are homeless, the more population over there, but you don't really want to walk in that area because certain things might happen um, at night or um, you might a certain smell in that area because of it's a very high homeless population. But San Francisco is um, losing, like California, losing um, residents, but it's actually a slightly turnaround in activity because people are going back to work in the office. Yeah, and you mentioned banks. Uh, Bank of America, I think, is headquartered in San Francisco, and I'm sure for Wells Fargo is. But we've seen closures of banks, you know, even though it, on the outside, you may not bank it, the the Brick and mortar bank in our neighborhoods closing, but it just they don't seem to be uh, any panic yet. It, are they just getting the uh, the non or underperforming banks off their off their list? Is that what they're doing, or is there a real issue behind this? Yes, Carl, it's a, it's a real issue. But real quick, Bank of America is actually headquartered in Charlotte, North Carolina, and Wells Fargo is actually in San Francisco um, headquartered. But there's been talks to move. A lot of the banks from San Francisco to Charlotte because it costs cheaper cost of li- living, and um, a lot of banking knowledge is in um, Charlotte, which is the second largest banking um, system in America outside of New York. So San Francisco over the years has been losing banking power to Charlotte. So, um, but uh, because of technology, a lot of the branches are going to be eliminated in the future uh, because the younger generations are going to use phones and their hand and face, and which they think is cute, and their eyes to make payments. Um, they're trying to move things a lot faster and swifter compared to having a lot of branches, which, you know, is going to affect the underserved communities because we have an aging population. A lot of people like to go in and talk to people because the minority community and the underserved community have an issue trusting banks still to this very day. You know, that's been going on since <laughs> the late 1800s. So are we going to see, like, Killer Mike and, with the help of Andy Young, open up a bank, uh, online bank, digital bank? Is that is that the future? Because that's what they were saying when they opened it up. Because we're not going to see banks again where brick and mortar where you can go. Because, you know, I, I mean, like a lot of people, you like to go to the bank, see that your money's there, you know, and talk to somebody. Because you, you know what it's like trying to get uh, customer service on the phone these days. Uh, is, is this the future, though, where the, the Killer Mike just opened this bank? I think it was last year, a few years ago, with, with Andy Young. Yeah, um, yes, that is slightly the future, but their technology is already outdated. Um, the, the way they set that bank up is the way I wouldn't set that bank up um, personally. And it also, they're really not a true bank. On the original initiation of the application that they and their business plan, um, they changed it because they must have heard me talk or um, some of my friends must have got to them and, and would have told them, a different way. They was using like the rush card, a third party um, bank charter to 
use their technology and tools to bring to the underserved community or the black community, um, they would have to, to me personally, own all of that technology and uh, run everything themselves through their own charter instead of using a third party like Russell Simmons did. Because when you use a third party, um, you can get in trouble. And all you got to do is look up the rush card to see how Russell Simmons got in trouble in the banking industry, not understanding the technology and understanding the master service agreements that you sign with other third parties. And I'm glad you mentioned that 10 away from the top there, because some of our, our, our quote unquote black banks are, are struggling. Is that the issue? Is, is there a trust issue where, where why they're struggling? How do you see it? Yeah, Carl, you can go back to the book, Black Bourgeois. You know, why do people, those, why do we support each other? Malcolm X said, why do we hate each other? And so I'm like, who taught us that? So over the years, we don't trust each other. We don't go to the banks. And um, the MDIs is going to be hurt because of liquidity, bank regulation, and um, they don't have enough deposits to uh, stay afloat in the future. So technology is going to be, to me, liquidity and technology is going to be the major killer of the minority deposit institutions because they don't have the technology to compete in the future. So what, what, the Hispanic banks, the Korean banks, you know, they got a, a Bank of Korea in, in L.A. They've got, a lot, they've got more than one Korean bank in L.A., and they seem to be doing well. they got Hispanic banks seem to be doing well. What's the problem with us? No, no, Carl. Um, a lot of the Hispanic banks and a few Asian banks is going to fail as well because, again, technology, um, commercial loans, um, that they have on their books is going to make them fail um, because they don't have enough liquidity and they don't have a keyword call. They don't have a broker dealer. So if the broker dealer is making money, they can like Bank of America, Wells Fargo, the big banks have broker dealers. They can move. Can, the can you explain what that is for us, Donnell? What's a broker dealer? Well, a broker dealer, you can borrow money from Wall Street um, or directly from the Fed mm. and invest into stocks and bonds and even crypto now and make money and have profits on your balance sheet. So when your bank side of the business lose money, you can take money from a broker dealer to offset your losses from the bank. Small minority deposit institutions don't have a stream of income to keep them afloat. And that's what a lot of African-American banks miss um, because of the Glass-Steagall Act. They should have opened up a broker dealer and had a broker dealer tied to the bank so when they make money on the stock market, they can pay off the bad loans um, <laughs> from their bank. And that is the secret sauce, Carl. That's so even, even, <laughs> yeah, Don, so even if all of us decide we're going to take our money out of the white banks, our churches, our mosques, and all of us are black folks and put it in the black banks, that still wouldn't help? It would help. It would help with deposits. It would help writing off some of the bad loans. But the secret sauce, Carl, you have to have a full-fledged bank because of the Glass-Steagall Act allow us to um, banks to use a deposit to invest in the stock market. You cannot deposit help, but you also need another uh, revenue stream because what's going to happen in the future, we're going to a collateral-based, asset-based system to lend and not a credit system or a um, system that um, banks can make money off of fees. As you've seen, during the Obama and Clinton um, debate when Obama and Clinton was running for the presidency on the Democrat ticket, they had a debate on 
uh, Bank of America charging uh, 29% or 32% on um, fees and also $25, $35 on fees. And what was the right amount? The Consumer Protection Financial Bureau came out and, and told the banks you cannot charge um, not sufficient funds fees anymore. So you can't make fee revenue in the future. So that's going away. So a new banking model is coming to the system that you, hey, give a secret sauce. These minority deposit institutions should have opened up a broker dealer back in the 90s. Mm. Six away from the top there. Hang on for a second for us, Darnell. We've got to take another quick break. Family, you want to join the discussion about money? We all should be involved because if you're not, you are involved, even if, whether you like it or not. At least you get some information on how to deal with it. Reach out to us at 800-450-7876. When we come back, though, Darnell, tell us why they say the economy is doing fine. It's working. Yet the man in the street's not feeling it. What's what's the disconnect there? I hope you share that with us. Family, we'll be back in four minutes. If you want to join the conversation, hit us up. We'll take your calls right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. And also in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power. Keep rocking. Good morning, family. Thanks for joining us this morning. Our guest is banking and financial expert Donald Parker. You got a question about money? Reach out to us at 800-450-7876. And Donnell, before we left for the break, I was asking you about the economy. You know, they tell us the economy is doing much better, but yet still the man in the street is not feeling it. Where's the disconnect here? Well, Carl, um, it depends on what numbers they use to say the economy is doing well. Um, we can make a number look good. We can make a number look bad. And let's talk about unemployment. Um, the unemployment number is not the true calculation of what the unemployment rate um, or the, the unemployment number should be. If you go past six months, they don't include those uh, people that are considered unemployed. So what I would do, my calculation is you take the amount of people in America that's actually um, able to work and the amount of uh, people who are not able to work, and you would put the amount of people who are, who are unable to work or unemployed on top of the numbers are, that are available, then you would see a higher unemployment rate close to maybe 18 to maybe 25%. There's been articles consistently showing that New York have a 50% unemployment rate for African-Americans, you know, um, and other cities like D.C. and Atlanta have over 30% unemployment rate for African-Americans. But when you look at it nationally, the unemployment rate, if you include all Americans, it would be higher than what the numbers that is published by um, the media. Yeah, another issue is, too, I was looking at these figures, 55 percent or 63 percent of Americans say are living paycheck to paycheck. And yet still they're telling us the, the, the economy is doing well. Is that the reality that people are living paycheck to paycheck? Yes, as I always say, the Federal Reserve came back in 2014 and said that 40% of Americans don't have $400 for emergency. They had to use a credit card. Now, we have to take account to the pandemic and higher interest rate and higher inflation. That went from 40% to 63%, and that number is in- increasing. So back in 2019, when I came on your show, I told people um, one of the ways to beat that is um, some, some things people want to hit here is get married, get a roommate, consolidate. Uh, find ways to get two or three incomes in your household. And sometimes we have to go back to the basics because we cannot control 
inflation and the cost that the corporations are charging us or surcharging us for products, goods, and services. Now, what we can do is boycott. But since so many people are watching Super Bowl last night, instead of coming up with a plan to boycott certain corporations or certain products, um, the high prices is going to continue in America. And speaking about inflation at three minutes after the top of the hour, is there anything that, that uh, John Q. Public can do about inflation? Is, is this government control? Is this a global movement? How do you see it? Well, it's controlled by the corporation. Corporations dictate um, inflation. Now, when you, when you look at the dollar or the um, fiat money from each country, if the countries keep printing money, of course, that debase that currency, and that causes inflation as well because when more dollars are printed, it goes to um, certain corporations, certain individuals, and that will make everything more costly for the average individual or the poor. Four after the top of the hour, Roger's reaching out to us. He's in California this morning. Good morning, Roger. Habari Ghani called. Uh, and good morning to your guest. Uh, I didn't get your guest's name. What, what, what is your guest's name? Donnell Parker. Hey, okay, Donnell. Good morning, Donnell. How are you? Thank you for the information. Uh, Carl, you know I'm in mourning this morning because uh, our team California lost in the Super Bowl. So to Baltimore, I feel your pain. But the only difference between us and Baltimore is we didn't have the best team with the MVP quarterback of the league. That's the only difference. But we both lost, so we're in the same situation. Now, Donnell, my, my question for you is, uh, you didn't touch on predatory lending, you know, that's in the hood, Nick's check cashing and all these places that ripped us off. And I found out that they were bagged by the big banks, like the big banks back all those predatory lending uh, companies in our hood. So could you comment on that? i take your response off the air. Thank you. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Yes, Carl, I did talk about predatory lending because that wasn't part of the question, but I can talk about it on a high level. Yes, predatory lending has been an issue in our community since the 60s and all the way up to the 80s. In fact, um, in the 1990s, early 2000, um, the National Baptist um, Convention and other um, churches across the nation um, recognized they wasn't getting as much tithes and offerings, so they attacked predatory lending um, in the communities and tried to find other ways for their um, members to get financing into the fact that because of the Dodd-Frank Consumer Protection Act in 2010, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau went after predatory lending in around um, 2010 to about 2015. So predatory lending always been an issue from the manual process of loan sharks to um, stores right next to your local convenience store, um, uh, people cashing checks early so they can pay their bills. 
So, so that issue is ongoing. Um, but as a community, do we pull our bootstraps up and work with our churches and community le- leaders to find ways to offer um, different forms of service, like a credit union? But again, Carl, this stuff should have been done in the '90s. Um, but you know, if we listen to each other. Yeah, six away from the top of the hour. Chevy from Maryland is on line three for us. Good morning, Chevy. Okay, in D.C., as a renter, as you know, the rent is going through the roof. And you had mentioned earlier, Darnell, that the um, market is about to ca- crash. Do you think it's a good time to try to become a homeowner? I would say no. Personally, um, there's been studies, and I did my own analysis, that it's right now in some markets it's, it's better to rent. And in order to buy a home, you got to really do analysis. Like, for example, um, right now the home prices are still high. And even with the high interest rate, I still don't recommend buying because I think there's going to be an opportunity to buy at a cheaper prices in 2026 to 2028. Um as I stated earlier, they're not talking about layoffs. In the past, the pandemic, they've been laying off people slowly, slowly, slowly. If they come out and say, well, Microsoft laid off 20,000 people at one time, 18,000, that would send a panic to economy. To the um, economy. So what they're doing very, very slow, laying off people slowly, managing that process. Then when you look up, these same people who got laid off don't have enough reserves to pay their mortgage in the future. So you're going to see by 2026 more residential properties on the market in 2026 will make the prices drop. But only the people who are working or have enough income or cash available will be able to buy those properties in 2026 to 2028. So you will see us move into a what they call um, an industry, a way that everything is going to drop. It's going to be a more of a reset but the price is going to drop and the interest rate is going to be lower. So only people who are available to uh, buy will, will see the fruit in 2026 and 2028. Backup question. So do you think because the rent is rising like it is in D.C. to just get a second job in addition to a full-time job? <laughs> no, my main, my main goal is to preach to people what former President Bush said, Jr., said that, African-American community would do better with two incomes. With, with we, what I saw was going on in the 90s, that um, the music industry was pushing everyone to be single, 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 and which destroyed, you know, one of the fabrics of American um, community of, by us being married compared to the marriage rate in the 1950s to, to today's is like reversed. So I, my main, I'm an advocate of marriage with two incomes, um, but I don't, advocate somebody having two jobs. I know that a lot of people are underemployed, but you cannot live your life working two jobs because only thing you're doing is working and not enjoying life. So if we can find a way to love each other and find ways to work with each other, I think having a roommate is better than you working two jobs because you're not going to be at home anyway to enjoy the house if you're working two jobs. Thank you. All right, thanks, yeah. Jerry. Speaking about that, the 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 rates you talked about, uh, housing rates, they're going to meet again. The Fed's going to meet again. Do you think they're going to reduce the rates? How do you see the next meeting? Well, Chairman Powell been very straightforward, um, and I think there's going to lower the rate two or three times because you know he's been very honest and his economics been on point this year. 
but I don't see them lowering a the rate until we have a financial or a cybersecurity or liquidity issue in the world. Something major has to happen to drop the rate um, because right now everything is steadfast. Um, like um, um, J.P. Morgan Chase, Jamie Dimon stated, mm, there is a hurricane coming, and the hurricane right now is, is, is coming by his words. So um, when that hurricane comes, there's going to be a reason, a major reason, two things, Carl. The Federal Reserve drop rates, and the second thing is the money printing is going to happen. Um, Congress, Federal Reserve is going to print more money to keep the economy afloat. And we have to remember 80% of the debt, worldwide debt, is considered by four countries, United States, Japan, um, UK, and, and, and all the European countries. And like I stated before on a previous show, we got to be very careful. When, China, when Japan take a fall, the United States is going to take a fall after Japan. Yeah, I got to ask you about Jamie Dimon. Jamie Dimon is a Trumpster. How much of that should we, you know, play into his comments? And, and I've got, I can't think of the Asian guy who wrote a, a series of books, too. Robert Kiyosaki. Yes, he's another Trumpster. And they're all, they're all claiming that the, the economy is going to tank. How much of that is knowing that they're Trumpsters? And, of course, they want Trump back in because he gave them all these big uh, tax cuts. How much of that should we, you know, uh, feel it's real and it's not some sort of BS that they're projecting on us? Well, uh, I listen to everyone, and I take the core back. But what I follow is what the Federal Reserve and Congress are doing. Federal Reserve and Congress actually control the market more than a president or anybody who's talking. Now, J.B. Diamond... He is with the Federal Reserve. He's in those meetings, and he has a relationship with Congress and the presidency. Um, it doesn't matter who's in office. If you look at J.P. Morgan Chase, they gave 50 percent of their money to Trump, but they also gave 49 percent probably to um, Biden. So we have to look at where is the money flowing in and out of and what's really going to happen and how do I protect myself. All right, 13 at the top of the hour. We're going to step aside, take a short break. We come back. Ben in Long Beach and Anita in Chapel Hill's got questions for you. Family, you two can join this conversation with Donnell Parker. He's a banking and financial expert. Reach out to us at 800-450-7876. We'll take your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WLB. If you're in the DMV, you're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, or information is power. And good morning, family. 20 minutes after the top of the hour with our guest, banking and financial expert, Donald Parker. You got a question about money or anything like that, reach out to us at 800-450-7876. I mentioned Ben's uh, online waiting for us. He's calling from Long Beach, California. Ben, good morning. Oh, yeah, Donnell. I was uh, uh, hanging there when you were uh, on. Uh, You're certainly an expert. So I have these uh, two questions. Number one, politically and economically, are we are uh, dancing on the Titanic before it hits the uh, iceberg, and are uh, we really being hooked, winked, hooked, winked, and uh, bamboozled about what we're being told about the economy? But also under the Donald Trump, the economy did seem to be booming, and I'm not a, a, a Trump fan. So exactly what's going on here, man? To me, the uh, future sounds so bleak about what you're talking about, and what's so scary is that when you come on and you give out these statistics. A person can actually go out and verify them. So 
So we know you're telling the truth, but it really sounds bleak. So um, I'll take it off the line, but uh, it's a very interesting what you're saying. So are we dancing on the Titanic before it hits the, ice, the, the iceberg? And, uh, you know, and uh, we've been hooked and, and bamboos about, about what we're being told about how the good the economy is. I mean, I'm doing well. I know other people that are doing very well. But these statistics that you're giving us are very scary. Thank you very much, sir. All right. Thanks, Brian. Donnell? Yeah, thanks for the question. That was a great analogy that he used, the Titanic. Um, I would say yes. When you look at um, the global debt in the world, um, there have to be a major change because we have to realize certain individuals and certain corporations are getting money and the Reaganomics is not getting down to the poor. Now, a lot of us here on this phone or on this network can actually see who who is doing well. Okay, your circle and I might be doing well for now, but you have to go and see how is the neighborhoods doing, how the communities are doing, what communities are you mentoring, or how is your family members are doing. When you look across the board, you will start seeing your circle and your finances is not the same as others. So when they talk about these numbers, 40% of the people um, are don't have $400 for emergency. If you're doing well, you should have received a phone call from somebody in your family in the past five to 10 years asking, can they borrow some money? You know, I, I get those calls every year. I have people I have met that I don't even know. They ask me for money off the streets. So, um, the way we look at America, we, we can look at it from an anecdotal view, but we have to look at it from a universal view and see how everyone is doing. Um, and my family members, we talk all the time about, you know, um, how to get out the rat race and how to um, put ourselves in a better position. And I forgot his second point, Carl. What was the second question? No, I, I was I forgot it too. But because I was thinking, so what do we do then? If your analysis is correct, like Roger said, so individually, what what do we? He, he was asking. I guess he was asking about Trump. He said things look appear to be better right. under Trump. But what? So what? Yeah, I'll let you answer that. But so if, if your prognosis is correct, so individually listening to you right now on the radio, what's our move? Well, one of the key things is. Um, look at the money that you got coming in. If you're working, if you're not working, you might have to look at um, the gig economy, work gigs here and there um, to find employment. Look at your expenses. And if your expenses are higher than your income, then you have to find a way to, again, I'm an advocate of marriage. I'm an advocate of roommates. I'm an advocate of us working together as a community. We can look at the Hispanic communities. Um, we can look at the Asian community. We have to look at the people who come in from India. We have to find ways to love ourselves and love each other to come back and take our neighborhood to put it back into a community and um, and at the same time, um, enjoy life. Uh, working two jobs is not the answer in total because working two jobs, Carl, it's been studies have shown that you're going to be more stressed out um, you're going to be overworked, sleep-deprived, and you're going to age a lot faster, and you have a higher mortality to um, lead a planet faster by doing that. So what's the answer? Save more, and, and, we, and you still may exit and, and leave the money for or whatever you've accumulated for somebody else. So what what is the answer? Well, well, you know, well that's part of the answer, Carl. And also you have to increase to see where the economy is going. I always talk about science, technology, engineering, math, um, 
If you love nursing, um, look at nursing. If you want to make more money at nursing, look at travel nursing, contract nursing, make more. Um, if you um, need a skill set, look into technology. doesn't matter if it's project management, um, government, IT um, compliance, um, government jobs, cybersecurity. You have to find ways. Look at jobs that make six figures or a job to make 85000 or more and, and try to find ways to enter that market. All right. Uh, 25 Carl, after. Carl, I, I need, Go ahead. I need to say this real quick. There's a guy named, uh, I think his name is Patrick David. He's uh, lives in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. He is an entrepreneur. He came directly from India as an immigrant. And he always uh, tried to talk down to people a little bit of how he came as an immigrant and made it. But at the same time, he don't understand the systems and policies that are created in America to oppress certain um, groups. But at the same time, I recognize that. But we also have to put our our education in our own hands and study uh, to get certifications and, and degrees to, to make more money. If people, immigrants from Africa, Nigeria, or India can come and learn IT, we can do it as well. Yeah, I agree with you on that one. 26 after the top of the hour. Let's keep rolling, though. Let's go to Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Anita, good morning. You're on with Darnell. Good morning. Good morning, Anita. Hi. Uh, hi, Carl. Um, I happen to be Muslim. I came in under Elijah Muhammad after he passed. His son, Walworth Dean, was teaching. He taught us there is no birth control that is sure and that children are to be expected. And in the modern economy, it is based on women mimicking the lifestyle of a man. There's no way a woman could do that and be sexually active because that's going to produce children or a murder abortion. I call murder abortion if you willingly do it. Now, miscarriage because of other health factors and rape is something else. But anyway, so the economy is set up for people that are white, that have had 500 years of free labor, which is in no way we can compete with that because we're not willing to be that cruel. So I don't see this banking system working at all. And Elijah Muhammad also believed that if women cannot be taken care of, that the men can have more than one wife, okay? And that's going to allow the man to be the protector of the woman while she nurtures children. And women cannot be full-time workers, especially the first two children, because she has had no experience with being a, a parent. And that's her job to nurture the child, being that, you know, she's carrying it in the womb and having a menstrual cycle for years to prepare her to be careful and delicate and all of these things. So I believe what Elijah Muhammad said, a man should be able to provide and no women should be expected to provide. She can add to the economy. She can have a special interest that she gives the world. But he is, she is not to be expected to be the provider, even if she has a lot of money, because that's her money, and it's not to be to the man. And the modern bankers are treating women like men and expecting them to be with men without being treated like a woman that could have children. And that's not fair to women, and that's discriminating against women and telling them they have to be men to make it in the economy. And that's not right, and I believe what Elijah Muhammad said. Love you all. All right. Thank, Thank you, you, Anita. Donna, you want to comment on anything she said? Yes, a couple of things. Um, when you go back to the 1960s, there was a 
documentary by Michael Moore out of Flint, Michigan. Um, he talked about the Detroit metro area that a man can go to work for the automobile industry, um, have two cars, his wife can stay at home, he can have three kids and send everyone to college. But something happened since the 1960s that the corporations came back and started um, charging more for products and services, cutting back on labor. Even though you have the UAW, they didn't fight for um, competitive wages for 40 years to keep um, up with the cost of goods sold. So um, also with the women rights movement, some women wanted to work and would force women to the market, which created another um, industry for women. And also, again, uh, women are paid less usually, and um, the cost of goods that single women um, who are working um, couldn't afford to compete with a man, which is fact. A woman's nature from our culture, the spiritual culture of Africans or um, ancient Egyptians, women are not naturally, um, should not be working. A man should be able to provide. I totally agree with that. But in today's economy, um, um, a family would have to make adjustment to lose, to move to a lower cost living. Like, you know, like, for example, Dayton, Ohio, the average African-American male make around, I believe, 48000 to 54000 So you have to move to a different city that is cheap um, in order to sustain a family without a woman working. All right, 30 minutes after the top of the hour with Don L. Parker. Let's continue, though. Money Mike's calling us from uh, Baltimore. Good morning, Money Mike. Good morning, Carl. Good morning, Donnell. How you doing? Good morning, sir. Okay, first, Donnell, I got a question. Uh, with the with the Democrats, with this being an election year, uh, do you think interest rates will drop with a, a Democratic-appointed Fed president? Uh, and the other thing is I think that the problem with the economy now is that Americans have too much discretionary income. You know, I think we should be honest. If we go through our cities and we look, uh, we see that there are people who look like us on the corners not working. You know, with, with, with the number of jobs each, each week, the unemployment rate, the, the jobless claims, they're in our favor, but we choose not to work. Now, I got three things to say. Uh, you get paid for what you do. That's a fact of life. You get paid for what you know how to do. Uh, the next thing is uh, if you do what everybody else does, you're going to have what everybody has. And the other thing is is your job, your, your worth, your, your pay is going to be dependent on how difficult it is to replace you. Now, the reason I say that, Donnell, is that I took a study and I found that most people – get out of high school and get a job and they remain in that job. And therefore their wages don't go up. I believe that, that two people should, I mean, people should work two jobs at least early in their life. Now I do believe in marriage and I do believe in couples because you get more stable. You don't go out as much and you have two incomes to build wealth. But if we aren't going to do that, I encourage young people, especially young people under the age of 30, you you better work too, or you better go to school. You better increase your knowledge, your your skill set, because other than that, mediocrity, following the herd, is a surefire way for mediocrity. So if you do what everybody else does, you're going to have what everybody else has. And I'll take your answers to those remarks off air. 
right. Well, hold on. Uh, response, uh, John L., because we're going to take a, a break. I hope you remember the questions or the comments from Monday Mike. Family, you too can join this conversation. Our guest is banking and financial expert Donnell Parker discussing money. And, you know, he's given us a, a preview of what the economy is going to look like and what's going on right now. Because sometimes they, they use these tricks that, like, we, like we've been talking about. The economy is supposedly doing well, but many John Q. public is not feeling it. So what, what are your thoughts? 800-450-7876. Those are the magic numbers to get you on. And we'll take your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WLB and also in the DMV on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL, where information is power. And good morning once again, family. Thanks for waking up with us this morning, 21 minutes away from the top of the hour with our guest, Donnell Parker. Donnell is a banking and financial expert. Before we go back to him, though, I want to remind you, coming up later this morning, we're going to speak with author, attorney, and reparations advocate, Nakishi, Nakishi Taifa. <laughs> Uh, Attorney Taifa is going to update us on the recent uh, reparations conference in Ghana and more. Before we speak to Attorney Taifa, uh, video photographer Jeffrey Nichols will join us. Jeffrey was one of the first person to, actually, he was the first person to videotape Nelson Mandela after his release, and that was 34 years ago to yesterday. And later this week, you're going to hear from the President General of the Universal African People's Organization, Brother Zaki Baroudi out of St. Louis. Also, metaphysician Dr. B will be with us, and chemitologist Tony Browder will also join us. So if you're in Baltimore, make sure your radio's locked in tight, real tight on 1010 WLB. If you're in the DMV, you're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL. All right. So, uh, Darnell, do you remember Money Mike's questions or comments you want to respond to? I remember his um, comments. He didn't ask a direct question, but let me talk about a few things. Um, I'm not going to talk politics, but the Federal Reserve and Congress control the interest rates and money supply. Traditionally, over the years, you can see um, during the election year, the Federal Reserve and Congress tried to ensure a stable economy or an improved economy heading to election year. Because as we know, um, even though there is a, a presidential election, there are Congress members being elected as well um, on both sides. So, and also we have to realize most corporations get a 5149. It doesn't matter who's running. Um, they are on both sides of the bird. So in order for the bird to fly, you need two wings. And so one of the problems we have in this country, and we're only focusing on the bird, but we had to understand and with, the, with the two wings. So it doesn't matter who's in the office. On the second comment he made, I believe, is talking about following the herd. It depends on what herd you're following. If the herd is negative in the neighborhoods or community, and you're following a herd that's doing negative things, and um, so you're going to get negative results. But if you see a herd that is doing positive things in the community or um, learn how to program computers, prevent hacks in computer systems, you see women making money in the nursing system, you might want to sit back and say, hey, how do you do this? How can you be my mentor? How can I learn from you? What are you doing? So sometimes if you see positive outcomes, you might want to talk to people and follow their herd so you can learn and, and, and cut, you know, make your success um, rate higher instead of making, you know, failures by doing it on yourself. So sometimes we need to follow herds to make sure that we have a, a better outcome. All right, 18 away from the top. Now Janice is up next. She's in the DMV. Janice, good morning. You're on with Darnell. 
Good morning. Good morning, everyone. I, I wanted to comment, Donnell, and I do have um, a question, too, as well. But first of all, I want to comment, and that is I am a, um, a seasoned person have, who has been in the information technology field for um, quite some time. I actually seen the transition from when we were transitioning over in the late 1990s, like 1999, into Y2K. I was a part of that, that group whereby – uh, at the time, um, they were the industry, industry, information technology industry was asking for everybody. And actually, at that time, they, the um, the groups of, of black folks were actually leading the way when it came to um, us being the resources and working in that field because there were not enough people to help with that transition. But as time continued, what I witnessed was the um, – individuals from East India who actually could not come immediately and get some of those positions because they did not have the proper status, such as their visas and stuff. So with that, with that being said, I've seen that transition. So when we say someone's coming over and they have the ability to come in and then basically get a job, right now what I recognize, too, is even if I apply for a position, the recruiters are Indian. They are hiring each other. When I went to get a position, with when I remember interviewing um, at the time when Obamacare was being um, developed in you know in the in the office with software, when I interviewed that whole office was nothing. It was not anything any black people there working on that contract. When I worked at Exelon Corporation, when I was a contractor, there were not any black. I mean, maybe a small percentage. So where are we in this in 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 the sea of things where we're not being hired? I had a young person recently tell me that they know someone from an HBCU, new newly graduate, and he couldn't get a job. He had to use somebody's father to help him get a job in cybersecurity. He could not he was not outright hired in that position as a new graduate. And so I, I always agree with you, Donnie. I think you're awesome. You have a lot of awesome um foresight. But when it comes to information technology, I'm using that one because I can speak on it personally. We how how can we compete when we're not being hired? How? And and that's my question for you, please. Right. Hey Janice. Thanks, Janice. Janice. Janice? I'm right here. Okay, yeah. Uh, question for you. Um, what city are you in? I'm in the Washington, D.C. area. Okay, okay, okay. So I, I totally agree with everything you said. Uh, back in 1995, you started seeing a push for um, Indians to come over here with IT work doing the YTK project. Um, at that time, I was working for the most admired company in the world called General Electric. And we use a lot of contractors from India to work on a Y2K project. We had we housed them, uh, we brought them in. You know, GE was at the time the largest corporation in the world. And um, from that push, you know, we start seeing, like you said, blacks transitioning from IT, getting into IT using organizations like called ISACA or the Black Data Processing Organization. If you look over the years, that organization went down for some reason in, in membership, but I totally agree with you. How do we compete? We have to get more people involved. We have to go to like organizations like National Black MBA or um, find someone who's African-American in these organizations and say, hey, I'm having these problems because even in D.C., I have problems personally. Um, back around 2003, 2005, um, some companies 
um, and some government agency was using Indian companies as minority companies, and they're not qualified to be a minority company because they're not classified as a minority in America at that time. Um, so I had to go do uh, a company called Pyramid Consulting Group out of the Western Virginia area. And again, um, I saw that back in 2003, 2005, that there were, of course, bringing people over because it was cheaper. They were asking for like $33 an hour to 35 compared to what we were probably asking for is $55 an hour to $125 an hour. So they were paying their people cheaper to get them under here, and they were staying in the same, you know, apartments or condos in the Washington, D.C. area, uh, three or four people in a place, um, or even at hotel extended stays, and they were paying on people $33 an hour. So, yeah, there is a very competitive labor edge. They're very, very um, competitive um, edge because um, a lot of the people from India focus on IT over since the mid-'90s because of corporate like General Electric. Project and Gamble brought them over here because of Y2K, and they stayed and, and gained experience. Um, and, and again, like the comments Patrick David stated, um, he didn't understand why you know African American Hispanics is not you know looking to IT because he don't understand what Janice said. In my experience as well, is that uh, once the corporation brought these people over here cheaper, they stayed and they're hiring their friends and family members all over again. Um, but we're we're not being placed in those, but the only way I can see around it is we have to get back into these nonprofit organizations like the Black Data Processing, making that stronger, and we have to go internally um, using some black managers, executives, and HR contacts to say, hey, this is my resume. I need to get in the door. That's the only way around it without advocating to um, nonprofit organizations. Right, no, but I, I'm sorry. Go can ahead. I just say one no, thing? No, yeah, go ahead. That is... When we have new graduates, they don't uh, they don't understand, Donnell. They want a job. When we have someone who's just graduated from HBCU and they spent the last four years or five years in the in the, in the technology field, they just want to work and they don't understand why they can't get a work. At, I mean, can't get a job, and they see everyone else who's coming over here with other nationalities, and especially if the recruiter is not even someone that they can assimilate with, then what makes that recruiter more inclined to want to hire someone that looks like me or look like you versus someone that looks like themselves? They're hiring themselves. So I think that we have a bigger problem. I, I think that maybe it's okay to go to nonprofits, but if we don't start creating companies of our own, which is not going to be hard, if we don't start going to procurement, going and, and gaining procurement contracts and gaining contracts that's going to help employ our young people, we have a bigger problem at hand because they're not going to do it. They're doing what they want to do, and they're going to continue to do what they want to do. And this has been a 20-year stretch, and look at how it's setting us back. So I appreciate you, you know, listening to me. Call. Thank you for taking my call. Have a great no, day. No, I sort of agree with you, Janice, because they stay on call. This one, Neely Fuller's uh, been teaching us. But, Donnell, the question I want to ask you, why did GE go overseas? Why didn't they, all of our people here, you know, Americans, and they don't necessarily have to be African-Americans or Hispanic, but why did they go overseas other than the fact that they're cheaper? Why, did they, why couldn't they, you know, work it out here? McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning their chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The 
McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Same way that all corporations are thinking globally, Jack Welch was one of the first CEOs that said, I'm not an American company, I'm a global corporation. In fact, he stated that 51%, over 51% of GE employees were international, not in America. So he was on the forefront of saying that this is a global market. We had to think global. And when um, GE did that, he wanted to make sure that he brought the talent um, to America because we have to remember when you deal with certain data and information in America, even to this very day, you can't let um, – Congress won't let um, other countries – outsource IT work and data if you're dealing with government data or any PII information. You have to get certain approval through the board directors and maybe the government entities to use um, technology overseas to make sure that um, anything can be compromised to affect national security. So in the 90s, that's one of the main reasons that um, they brought people into America because we couldn't house um, technology, servers, and information overseas. But now there have been so many changes. You can outsource a lot of things to India, as we see India is the um, second um, largest economy outside of China. All right, 800-450-7879, away from the top of the hour. JT's calling from Illinois. JT, good morning. You're on with uh, Darnell. Okay, yeah. So thank you for taking my question. Um uh, I had a, I was listening over the weekend to Giannis Varoufakis. Uh, I guess he was what over Greece economy for a while, um, and he was saying that we're at the end of capitalism, and uh, we're looking at this new technical techno feudalism. So, with that being said, the, the top companies now actually don't produce anything, which is you know we're in a different ball game now. And after after listening to that that interview, it, it, it occurred to me that I'm not sure if we really understand as far as the time we in with the end of this capitalism and the beginning of what's called perfect capitalism, because capital the the old style of capitalism brought together the market and you know the individuals were buyers and sellers. This one is tailored exactly to each individual. Uh, he gave a perfect example of that. Like if you and I both walked into the store with the old capitalism, it would just be goods on sale. And that way then, you know, we would then take our pick. This new capitalism, you and I walk into the same store, I see something different, you see something different, and it's more tailored to my likes. I guess the question is now, and you, you spoke a little bit about it, about getting into the non-for-profits. I think we need to be figuring out how to get ahead or um, to understand this new market that's emerging now while the old one is sort of so slowly dissipating. That's my question right there. Could you could you answer that like a little bit more on that or are you familiar with Giannis Varoufakis? Thank you. All right. Thanks, JT. I'll tell you what, uh, Don, I'll let you respond to that on the other side. We're going to take a short break. If folks, you want to join us, reach out to us at 800-450-7876. 
as, as I mentioned, it's four minutes away from the top of the hour. We'll be back in four minutes, so right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB and also in the DMV or on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL, where information is power. Keep Good morning once again, family. Minute after the top there, we our guest, Donald Parker, and we've got uh, Jeffrey Nichols standing by. Jeff's going to take us back to 34 years ago when Nelson Mandela was released. He was, one of the, he was actually the first video photographer there at Mandela's release. But let's finish up with uh, Darnell. Darnell, uh, JT had some questions for you. I'll let you respond to those questions. Yes, Carl. Um, I don't want to be criticized from any of your audience listeners, but I have to do something real quick. So I'm going to tie in a quote from Henry Kissinger and finish it with a quote by our ancestor, um, Bubba Dick Gregory. Henry Kissinger stated, who controls the food supply controls the people. Who controls the energy can control the whole continent. Who controls the money controls the world. But before I answer to Dick Gregory ended, he said the most important thing we have to pay attention to who controls the data and the systems control the world in the future? And we at this stage right now, Carl, by using phones, technology, apps on our phones, by checking weather, um, there is a behavior that these phone systems can monitor every day around 730 in the morning. You check weather. Um, when you go to work, they can see you leaving your home, planning a route to work. Um, every single day or when you travel to go see your mom or if you're choosing to eat, they downloading this data and selling data behind closed doors to other companies and they're going to use this data in the future so when you go shopping, they know from your credit card and your apps, um, you like to shop at The Gap or you like to shop at Banana Republic and you go buy a certain size. When you walk into a store, they already know using your data and your history what you like to eat at Whole Foods or Trader Joe's or Kroger's or what you like to buy in a store or when you want to buy from Amazon, they can predict you run out of these vitamin supplements or chicken. Um, you need to order chicken again. So they're using that data already um, to program us like we're short on things or we need to do certain things. And in fact, Mark Cuban made a statement one time. He said they have systems that they can predict a divorce when someone buy um, flowers outside of Valentine's Day. Um, six months later, there's a, a, a certain percentage chance that the, that couple is going through some issues. Oh, wow. Interesting. Interesting uh, figures, though, uh, Donnell. Donnell, before we let you go, how can folks reach you? They want more information? Uh, thank you, Carl. Uh, people can reach me at area code 202-643-8301. Again, 202-643-8301. Thank you, Carl. All right. Thank you, Donnell. Thanks for all the information you, sh- you shared with us this morning. Well, as I mentioned, we have uh, we, we, we have um, Jeffrey, J- Jeffrey Nichols standby. But hold on, Jeff, because uh, Bill is joining us from Baltimore and also Tyrone. They've got an, an update for us. Bill, let's go to Bill first. Bill? Hey, first, thank, thank you so, so very, very much, Carl, for everything. Carl, I just want to remind people that this coming up Friday, at nine fifteen, we're gonna have a bus going to Greenbelt, Maryland, uh, for for people to go and 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 view the procedures that's taking place in regards to the Maryland Mosby trial. Carl, it it is so important that we get 
in my estimation, thousands of people out there so that uh, the judge could see the type of support that this woman had from, from the black community. Carl, I, I know you don't have much time, but I just need to make it perfectly clear to, to everybody because sometimes people listen to mainstream media and people really need to know that this trial, what they're trying to do to this woman has nothing to do with her in terms of how she spent her money, in terms of her getting uh, money from her early retirement, in terms of uh, her her husband to change money. This is all about Marilyn Mosby standing up for the black community and going against the system. And it's very important that we, as black people, who always say we want want a political leader that's going to have courage to stand up to the system, and then when we get somebody to have courage and they come after her, then we at least have to show her that we're going to stand with her. So I'm asking people to do everything within your power to either come get on the bus, drive your vehicle, and join us this coming Friday out in Greenbelt, 6500 Cherrywood Lane. Uh, the proceedings are going to start at 10:15 or 10:30. But people that need to get on the bus, we're asking them to meet us at New Shadow yeah. Church at 9:15, North Monroe Street. All right. And Thanks, I, Bill. I appreciate it. Yes, sir. Thank you. Yes, sir. Because we got to keep moving. Got Jeffrey Nichols. He's got a story he wants to share with us online, and also Tyrone's on line five. Tyrone, can you make it quick for us? Sure, Bill is absolutely right. This has nothing to do with uh, um, uh, uh, her mortgage documents, routine mistakes that Americans, thousands of Americans make every day without any prosecution. So um, what it is is a high-tech lynching, basically. And uh, I stopped at a church uh, uh, this weekend, and I was very well-received. Once I explained to everybody what was really going on, she, we pretty much got a standing ovation. And one of the ladies said that her son would donate a bus. So we get the churches involved, and some of the churches have told me that that um, they don't get involved in politics. Listen, this is not politics. This woman's not in politics anymore. She lost that job because of us. And uh, so they don't let them use that excuse on you. This, if it is about politics, then it's wrong, doubly wrong because you shouldn't use uh, the law against politicians. So this has nothing to do with politics. It's a suffering citizen, and that's right up the line and right up the avenue of the churches. And a lot of them are afraid to lose their faith-based initiative money which the Republicans um, gave them to weaken the black church. So we got to remember that. Make sure your your churches have gotten involved in this because this is a political, this is a witch hunt, rather. Right. And uh, we need to make sure this lady is saved. And again, the, the address is 6500 Trewood Lane, Greenbelt, Maryland, 20770. That's February uh, uh, the uh, 16th. That's, fr- that's a Friday. And uh, we're going to have a bus uh, down at the uh, 2100. Uh, North Monroe Street, a new shallow Baptist church. All right. Thank you, thank you, uh, Tyrone. Uh, and Jeff, we get to you momentarily. Sister Sashina, can you make it really, really quick for us? She's on line three, Kevin. Yeah. Sister Sheena? Yeah. Yes, good morning. Good morning. Yeah, go ahead. Make it quick for us. We got a uh, okay, uh, guest yes. holder. I, I also want to add on that um, basically... Um, it was about 100 of us in the court when the prosecution and Ms. Mosley attorney was uh, going through the motions for the jury instructions. And the judge refused to add an important element to the verdict sheet 
that she should have added so that it was consistent with the jury instructions, and that was the word knowingly, which is what um, is the primary element for the government to have proved Ms. Mosby being guilty. And because that word knowingly was not added to the verdict sheet, her attorneys will also be arguing that motion as well, which is why, um, and Brother um, Smitty asked me to have people to get there. One bus will be there at 8 o'clock, and they're going to start loading those buses. As soon as those buses are full, they will be rolling out because we want to get down there because buses are not like cars where they can weave in and out. But I want people to be clear. The word knowingly, the jury never received that on the jury instructions, which explains, remember we were telling you there was an attorney that was in there saying this is a civil matter. She should not have been charged criminally. So the prosecution, the government must have proven that Ms. Mosby acted criminally by knowingly doing this, which was this sheet was sent to her by her mortgage person. So there was no misstatement of fact knowingly. She only responded to the instructions from the realtor. So I want to be clear on that. The jury uh, never received that, which is why they may have rushed to judgment. It's a key, key element. So we'll be there to to um, support her and her attorneys while they argue these motions. It's several uh, motions. So thanks, Brother Carl, for intercepting y'all's show for this, sister. Cause right. I think this is important, it. though, Sister Sheena and Tyrone. Thank you. Uh, the, the, thank you about that. But anyway, let's go to move on now to Jeffrey Nichols. Jeff, good morning. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. I can hear you, Carl. Okay, good. Good morning, Jeffrey. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm doing excellent, brother. But uh, I want you to take us back 34 years ago. Get in your memory. 34 years ago, what happened a few days before yesterday? Because you were on a, you were actually the first person to videotape interview uh, Nelson Mandela. How did it start? How was the journey for you? How did it start? How did the uh, journey start, or how would the, uh, the the moment inside that area? Because there there are two how, starts that. Yeah, well, let's start with the first. How it all started? Because we were, you were back in L.A., you got a phone call. Yes, yes, yeah. That that starting, I think that you know, I heard. I want to say this. Uh, I heard Darnell speaking, and I would like to comment on something that he said. Your guest listeners before me, I'm not sure what that. Whole, uh, I, I kind of got a sense of what that was, but please, I'd like to come back with that. But the answer to your question, how did it all start? You know, I just thought of this, Carl, and it really all started with reputation. Because without a 
grand or stellar reputation or someone's need, then I would not have gotten that call years ago to do this most important uh, journey. But Quincy Jones Entertainment called my company, First Take Productions. I've had that company since I was age 24 and uh, never worked for anyone really, basically myself. And so got the call, thought about it, said, yeah, you know, I'll go. And uh, we, you know, set out on a journey to, uh, to to work with Jesse Jackson. And that's what I was told to do that. And it, it kind of was vague at the point, but there was a lot of moving parts in that. So, um, yeah, uh, I could go on and on about it, but basically, you know, get passport on the plane, wolf in the air. And now, you know, I meet up with a group of people that I've never seen, never spoken to, and they don't know me. I don't know them. And it was quite an ordeal because uh, when I landed, we landed, I think, in Lusaka, uh, Zambia, wherever we were. And I was in a hotel all by myself just thinking about what to do and how to get this equipment going and had some, you know, technical issues. But basically, it was a mouthful, a heartful, and it just exploded. The most sure did. Let me ask you this, though, because, you know, uh, I took the same journey with you, but the, the South African consulate in Beverly Hills, they had me waiting. I got off the air at nine and I was there about nine thirty waiting for my yeah. passport. They had my passport for more than a month just to get the visa. Oh. And they kept telling me, are you oh, getting the visa, getting the visa? So at about, you know, I hadn't eaten or anything. I haven't packed or anything. And we, we got a red-eye flight to London. So I got the phone uh. call uh, Rev and says, hey, listen, these guys are jerking me around because they got my passport. I still haven't got a visa. So you need to call them because, you know, I spend them the whole day because I got a, a 10 o'clock flight. Uh, the, the red eye to London, so he called. But they, they finally gave me my passport with with the uh, with the visa in it at about five o'clock in that evening. That's why I'm asking you this because I know you mentioned we we stopped in Lusaka, but before that we went to London, and uh, exactly. then I had to navigate to get uh, a Zambian visa because they had my passport for so long. So it, I went and got a Zambian visa. Then we went to Ten Downing Street where uh, Jesse met with uh, Margaret Thatcher. And I guess it was on and then. Then, then we went to Zambia. That's where I, I remembered you guys coming out. Because as you mentioned, they're all people from different places on this particular journey. When did you figure out that, because, you know, they vaguely told us that uh, we were possibly going to see get Mandela out. But after, after a few years ago, I asked uh, <laughs> Reverend Jackson about this. And he says it was already, the deal was already cut. <laughs> you know, so, so he's telling the deal was already cut. So they, I just said that we stopped at 10 Downing Street in London to figure out, you know, how the process worked. But when did you find out that we were actually going to there watch Mandela get released? God, man, you know, uh, the older you get, the, the better you become. I just, I just think that, um, you know, I did not, no one mentioned Mandela. They just said mm-hmm. Africa, Jesse Jackson. And the Mandela part kind of came to me later uh, when I was at the hotel. And again, you know, we just got this information. They said, Jeff, get on a plane and go. And as a, as a freelancer, you go do something. You do get information. But this was one of those kind of, I don't know, not a hush-hush, but I got there and it was just, let's make sure that the equipment is going to work and let's go do something spectacular. Um, Carl, that's a good question. You know, um, and I, I, I can't expand on it. I just know that once, once the moment started, we were on a bus and we were going to go do something. And now, yeah, Mandela's going to get out of prison and just document the entire event. You're stuck to Jesse Jackson's hill. 
and <laughs> I can that, go from there. <laughs> yeah, hold that thought right there, Jeff. We've got to take a short break here. I'll come back and let yeah. you tell your story because 34 years ago, Jeff was there when Mandela was released. We'll share our stories with you, family. And this is something I haven't even talked about on the radio before to this extent. But so we're going to hear it first because I, I need somebody who was there to actually validate what happened. 14 after the top there. I'll be back in four minutes, though, with Jeffrey Nichols, award-winning photographer family, right here in Baltimore on 1010 WLB and also on the DMV or on FM. 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL where information is power. And good morning, family. It's uh, 21 minutes after the top there with award-winning video photographer Jeffrey Nichols. He's taking us back 34 years ago. Nelson Mandela's release from uh, uh, from prison 34 years ago yesterday. And, and we, lo- we left off at, at Zambia. That's where, we, that's where actually Jeffrey and I hooked up. Because, you know, Je- before that, it was, I was supposed to go to Africa with, with Richard, Richard, Richard Pryor, Gladys Knight, and Jermaine Jackson, some other folks, and Larry Carroll, uh, who's an anchor at, at the time at KBC, in L.A., so they wanted us to document, and then Richard had his unfortunate accident, so that was scrapped, and then he later went by himself. So you, we, we're in Zambia now, and you remember, you said you were in your hotel room trying to figure out about your, your equipment? Yeah, you know, I mean, I mean, what I like to say, uh, Carl, I mean, just to kind of uh, sew it up a little bit on my, in, in, on my end, it's, it's something I wrote, and maybe this won't be as wordy as it seems to be. If, I, if you allow me to read it, it, it may out a little bit. Is that okay? Sure, go ahead. In 1990, I embarked on a mission that forever shaped my perspective on storytelling through the lens. And again, you know, my perspective is going to be much, much different from others. So uh, as a witness to history, I stood in the presence of Nelson Mandela during his release in South Africa. In the midst of chaos, anticipation, armed with, armed with my camera, I faced the daunting task of capturing moments that echoed the spirit of change. And, and uh, through the lens, I experienced the gravity of the occasion, navigating the delicate balance between duty and danger. My journey alongside Justice Jackson and others was not just about documenting events. It was about preserving a narrative that transcended borders and ideologies. The journey wasn't without its perils, as I encountered challenges that tested my resolve and determination. Yet amidst the turmoil, that was a sense of purpose, a commitment to storytelling that transcended the confines of mere footage. It was a journey marked by sacrifice and an unwavering dedication to truth. Today, as I reflect on these tremendous uh, days, uh, I am reminded of the power of storytelling and the profound impact of bearing witness to history in the making. And I just want people to understand, you know, that is, you know, my take on it. And that's it. We can continue on. I hope that. Yeah. So, so when did you come to that? Cause you know, once you're in the moment and we'll, we'll get to Cape town and what happened uh, and, and what happened in Cape town before we went, went to Joburg. But when did you get that perspective? Cause you know, once you're in the moment, Jeff, as people don't understand, once you're in the moment, something historical, you really don't have time. Cause it's, the movement, everything's going so fast, you don't have time to compute. I'm actually in Mandela's bedroom, you know, sitting next to him. And all, when did you figure out that we were on, on this, this, this journey, this, this momentous journey? It, was it afterwards? Did you, how, I, guess, I guess, how did you process it? And when did you process it? 
Well, you know, the process of storytelling through the lens and, you know, documenting uh, events. And like you say, it's a really people don't understand it's a whirlwind of information passing through time. And as a, um, as a camera person, as a lens gathering image, you have to be able to what you call dissect the moment into moving pictures. And what I realized was uh, that my life was in danger many, many times. I realized that we had a, uh, a mission uh, suggested to uh, be shown to uh, capture all the moments. But again, life danger <laughs> situations, people don't realize what led up to that moment inside that bedroom. We went through a battlefield, Carl, and you probably can uh, expand upon yeah. that. It was just talking about for us. You know what what happens in South Africa back then. This is pre apartheid, so the blacks couldn't stay in, in Joburg, the whites couldn't stay in Cape Town. They had to go to their Batustan, which is in 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 Johannesburg, Soweto, Southwest Township. That's what the initial Soweto stands for. And in Cape Town, they had to go go to what's the name of the city? Uh, Crossroads. They had to go to Crossroads. Oh my goodness! So, so we're out there, and and uh, we the buses parked, and we hear some some shots. So Jeff and myself are running towards where the shooting, you know, as reporters, we want to find out what's going on. And we had some people with us. So we had Bernie Grant, who was a, a member of parliament from Britain, from London, and also uh, Diane Abbott, which was the first black yes. member of parliament f- uh, from Britain. They were with us as well. They're running back in the bus, and Bernie's like, he's a big guy, and he's, I didn't come all the way down here to get shot. <laughs> and me and you are going in there. He almost knocked your camera down as we were going in there. We're trying to find out what's going on. Where's the shooting coming from? That's that's what Jeff is referring to. That was was kind of dangerous. So we did, you know, I'm glad you even mentioned that because I wasn't going to mention that at all. But yeah, it was it was kind of it was yeah. kind of scary for a second right there because you don't know where you are, you don't know the folks, you don't know what's going on. But go ahead. Well, the thing about uh, fear is, you know, I tell people, you know, fear is one thing, but reality is a whole different ball game. So that fear could be on different many levels, but to have five, I think there were five AK-47s loaded who had, you know, they had released bullets onto a body. People don't realize that was a man body being carried, bloodshot, blood, you know, spilling, and now they're saying, look, we're going to point these five AK-47s at you, Jeffrey, because you have now documented information, and we want that tape. They were actually you know, I don't know. I, 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 that's where instinct comes in. I've been in riots. I've been uh, on DEA drug bus. You know, you name it. Uh, my history is long lived. But I can tell you one thing: the reaction time had to be this: look them in the eye, move away very slowly, because you have five, you know, um, soldiers, whatever they are, policemen. They call them buta, pointing guns down the barrel, and you're looking at them, and they're saying, bah, 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 and they're saying whatever their language was, but they were basically saying, give me that camera now. And so as a cinematographer, you look them in the eye, and you move away very slowly. And that's what I did, and I moved away very slowly, and then I ran like a gazelle. <laughs> and I remember, <laughs> <laughs> you know, they, I mean, it, it was one of those events, uh, ladies and gentlemen, that uh, – you know, one day I'll write a book. How about that? Yeah, that's what I. Yeah, you you, you have to tell tell what happened. Then we went to because Cape they, Town. People don't realize this. You know, even the time when we were when when and and this is going to Cape Town, uh, uh-huh. Carl. People uh, have to understand. You know, those Africans have been. You know, they had been sitting there perched there for hours in the hot sun. Remember that man? Yeah. And, and um, 
as a, as a cinematographer, documentary, I have to, you know, get the best point of advantage. And that was a gentleman sitting, standing. Well, he had the best spot on the planet. And I got out of the van after, you know, you know, fighting for a breath. And we'll have to talk about that. And I looked up at him. And I know God was in this all the way. And that young man, he said, you want this place. You want my seat, don't you? And I said, I really sure love that seat. And, you know, you, the story unfolds. I got that seat, got the best pictures, best advantage point. And so that's my job. My job is to go out, cut it up, find the best advantage point, you know, uh, fit in, but do not ever disrespect anybody. And God will lead you through it, my friend. Yeah, and what Chef's talking about, there was, there was a sea of humanity, a sea of humanity family. There was, it, there's no way to move. There were so many people there. The South Africans waiting for all these years for Mandela to get out, just to get a glimpse of him in Cape Town. And, and Jeff was trying to get a good position. I, I was moving around trying to get a microphone in position. He, was trying, he had a, a heavy camera. He was lugging, you know, those old-style heavy cameras. He was lugging around trying to get yeah. a, good, a good shot. And uh, when Mandela came out at City Hall, at Cape Town City Hall, oh do you remember that? And Jeff was shooting mm-hmm. it, and, and uh, Jesse had worked out with CBS, the, the brother from, his, I can't remember his name now. He was there and, and handed the microphone to him to, so he could go back live to Chicago and ask Mandela a question. And the brother started crying. <laughs> you know, he, just, he was just overwhelmed. <laughs> Jesse snatched the mic and threw it in my hand. And the only thing I could say, Mr. Mandela, how are you feeling right now? Now, all these folks, you know, it, it, you can't explain that though, those moments, no, Jeff. You know, no, no. you'd have to be there. <laughs> well, hey, Carl, you just struck a really interesting point. I do you remember that they were going to drop tear gas from the hell? You remember the helicopters that were hovering above us? Oh, yes, yes, yes. I forgot, <laughs> I just thought about that. You know, this time and this event, you know, the book is going to be written, ladies and gentlemen, and we're going to tell you all about it, but I have. We have video footage to accomplish that too. Now, they there were there were uh, helicopters above us, threatening to drop tear gas amongst the people. See, you know this journey of love will never cease because we have to realize, you know, Nelson Mandela he wrote a quote. He says, "I have found I have fought against white uh, domination. I have fought against black domination." I have cherished the idea of a democratic and free society in which all persons live together in a harmony and with equal opportunities. It is an idea which I love, which I hope to live for and to achieve. But if need be, it's an idea for which I am prepared to die. Mm. See, we, we give our lives daily, and we think we do. We think we don't. I don't know, but I can tell you this. Our lives, ladies and gentlemen, listeners, it was on the line. You know, when people point AK-47s, but not just pointing, but they were in a fear factor. When helicopters are hovering to uh, drop tear gas on people's lives, yeah. you know. But, but you got to remember, Jeff, that uh, a part of that was still, was still in session there. So they looked at us yeah, as just yeah, a group yeah. of black people. That the the police, yeah. the white police officers had a control. So we, we're we're going to be subjected to what the average black yeah. South African goes through every day when they point those guns at us when they threaten the tear gas. That's what they go through. They didn't distinguish well, that that we were not South Africans. Well, well, Carl, you know what people people when I say people, let's stop saying people. Let's just say that what you must realize, ladies and gentlemen, the Buta, the police were 
black. There were no white people pointing guns at me. They were black people. You know, we we dominate. You know, we we demonize ourselves sometimes. But you know, whoever is in control, so be it. You know, I heard uh, Danielle speak about people being in control, and I really want to expand upon that at some point because we need to know who's really in control, and that's God. But God created us all, and you know, um, I just say this journey was a life-changing event, and I know Carl. Uh, you must ask me about my life-changing event before we end this this uh, podcast. All right, well, let's go. We're gonna take a short break. We come back. We'll deal with that. And also, do with the the interview because right after that, the next day, yeah, the interview. Everybody wants to talk about the interview, which was the very next day. We were in Mandela's bedroom. That was Jeff, we, myself, almost, Mandela, and Jesse. Um, the, we, we, and Jesse. Yeah, that day. So we'll yeah. talk about that when we get back and talk about your journey. 26 minutes away from the top of the hour family. We're discussing Nelson Mandela, who was freed 34 years ago in, in South Africa, in Cape Town. And uh, we actually was there. So uh, Jeffrey was there taking the videotaping the whole event and, and did the interview. That's what we're sharing with you this morning. Because I've never talked about this on, on the radio to, to this extent. Because all I did was just file reports back to the radio station, what, what happened. You, you, you can't get a really... A, a, a good sense of what the feeling was. And even now when we're telling you, because it, it was it was amazing. That's all I can say. But anyway, we'll, we'll try to make, we'll give it an attempt when we get back after this short break in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WLB and also in the DMV on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL, where information is power. Again, family, 22 minutes away from the top of the hour. Jeffrey Nichols. Jeffrey's an award-winning video uh, camera guy, video photographer, whatever d- description he wants to wear. And he's also a college professor right now as well. And he, he was commissioned by Quincy Jones when we went to South Africa to get uh, uh, Nelson Mandela's release, which the reason why we're talking about it, it was 34 years ago yesterday that Mandela got out. And the, the coverage on the Johannesburg newspaper was Mandela out, Tyson out. Tyson was knocked out by Buster Douglas. There was a split screen on that paper. But Anyway, I'll get to back to that in a moment, and Jeff as well, because coming up after Jeff, we're going to speak with author, attorney, and reparations advocate, and Kichi Taifa. She's going to give us a reparations update. And later this week, you're going to hear from the President General of the Universal African People's Organization, based in St. Louis, Brother Zaki Brudy, also a metaphysician. Dr. B will be here, along with chemitologist Tony Browder. So if you're in Baltimore, make sure your radio's locked in tight on 1010 WOLB. If you're in the DMV, run FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL. All right, Jeffrey, take us back now. Let's go into Mandela's bedroom right after the right after the, he was released that, that I can't remember what, what uh, day it was, but the next day we were in uh, Mandela's bedroom. This was four of us. Yeah, tell us that we're story. In his bedroom. Uh, been in the bedroom at that time, Carl. You were you were amongst uh, the few of the many. I think it was Jesse, you and myself, right? That's it. And, and Nelson Mandela in that bedroom. Uh, how did we get in there? It's because uh, I think you were glued to Jesse's hip as well as I, you know, as well as myself. So uh, I found that to be a very touching and um, uh, a tender moment. Um, I, I remember Carl, you being sitting on the bed near Nelson at that point, right? Right, he was sitting between me and Reverend, but okay. During yeah. that moment, right. did you did you reflect? Did you did you understood understand what was going on? <laughs> I, I I you know again you know as a cinematographer uh, you, you're 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 dealing with a frame, 
and you have to build that story. And so I was trying to, you know, uh, jockey for the best position to get, you know, to tell the story. So, uh, so far as hearing what was being said, I wasn't really cued in on that. It seems to me that Jesse was there uh, in, a, in, a, in a comforting sense to say, you know, you're home now, you're here, you know, we're, we're here to support you. We've been supporting you throughout this, this, uh, this journey. And uh, there were hands laid on him, you know, just, just a moment of uh, a comforting moment. That's what I, I got out of it. Uh, but I know that you were more immersed in the conversation with Jesse and Mr. Mandela. Yeah, and here's, here's the scene, though, family. Uh, this was in Mandela's home in Soweto. Every single, if you think, just about every single news outlet was trying to get inside. Was, and they were outside. And the brothers called themselves the spear of the nation. There were some young brothers, and, and they were armed. They all had guns, and they were surrounded. So, you know, because in, in addition to the media that were trying to get in, there, there was all these folks from around the world that were trying to get in to, to see Mandela. We were in the inner sanctum. We were in his bedroom, as, as Jeff was, was talking about. He was, That's right. Yeah. He, we, Mandela, and I'm sitting beside Mandela, and I'm asking the questions. Jesse's just there, and, and, Jeff, and Jeff is filming this. So I'm, I'm just wondering, because I know, as you mentioned, you're, uh, what you, you, you're focusing on the subject, and I'm focusing yeah. on, the, on the questions. So, That's, uh, That's yeah. right. Yeah, so was it a, a different photo shoot for you, or was it a special? How did you view it? it you know, um, Instincts are will never leave you. When I'm in a, it, it doesn't matter who who's in front of me. Uh, I, I don't really get taken in by you know famous people and their you know their journey. It's, it's you know because as a professional, you, you the job is to get the pictures, you know, but also a sense of respect. But also you know there's a small space inside that bedroom. Um, so I, I think my job is to be like in the stealth mode. Uh, fly on the wall, as you might say. But again, you know, outside those doors, outside that bedroom, there were people that were needed to see, wanted to see, and no matter what, they were going to climb a fence and get a picture. And so Carl and I, yeah, we were in that, we were that inner circle. And, uh, but there's chaos outside. But then there's harmony inside the kitchen, there's food, there's Winnie Mandela, there's uh, Desmond Tutu. All these people were there, these famous people. But again, Carl's job, my job is to get the story. Am I correct, Carl? Yeah, yeah, and, and then in when we finished the interview, somehow you your picture managed on, on the cover of the Washington Post to talk, <laughs> talk to us about what what, what were you doing? Oh, oh my goodness! Well, you know, secrets shall not be told, but again, the book will be written. I think this is my promo moment. Sorry about that, but it needs to be told because people have told me, Jeff, you have so many great stories. Because people don't understand that as a cinematographer. You go places where many, many people never do. They hear about the story, but how did the pictures, you know, resolve? How did that image, you know, someone had to be there at that moment? So, yes, uh, secrets. Let's talk about the uh, the moment outside. I was in a perfect position for the photo op, and I was uh, nestled between Nelson Mandela and Jesse Jackson. And uh, we were there with uh, Winnie and Jacqueline, I think Jackson, if I got that correct. And it was just uh, five of us. And that picture went viral around the country. And I, before I even got home, people were saying, Jeff, you've been in South Africa? Is that you? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I don't know, man. It's, uh, it's, it's just surreal. It's just a moment. And I don't think I even have gathered those thoughts to say, Jeff, do you realize, you know, you and Carl have witnessed one of the greatest feats on earth. 
I mean, here's this man that's been locked away for 27 years, and you're there having dinner. You're in his uh, bedroom, and now you're outside with him, and you're getting. And he, by the way, Carl, he signed a T-shirt for me. Oh wow! Thing. I have it. Fr- I have it framed. I have it framed. It's beautiful. It's so beautiful. And um, you know, when, when you guys were doing that outside, uh, uh, every, Dan Rather was trying to get in. Uh, Carol Simpson, and somebody yeah. sent. She sent somebody a note to to uh, Rev, and he says, "You know Carol Simpson? I don't know. I know. Do you know what she looks like?" I said, "I know what she looks like. Well, well, uh-huh. Let her in." So I went out there. That's when you guys were doing that. And but the other folks who were trying to get to Jessica because they wanted the interview as well. But she, she was. This, I think she she had to be the second person to get an interview. Okay, well, you know that moment you know, may maybe based me because you know again you know I've got a right eye and a left eye scanning whatever needs to be filmed. But, um, Carl, do you remember, I mean, this is away from the subject a little bit. Do you remember uh, the point where we were in hiding and the tape, the recorded footage back in Crossroads where Dan Rather, Tom Brokaw, everybody, CNN, they were asking for that that, that footage. Right. And we yes, had to I hide. do. We actually, we, we actually hit, ladies and gentlemen, we hid the tape in, in inside of an oven. Inside of an oven. Can you imagine someone that turned that oven on? <laughs> but, I mean, what? Oh, man. Uh, anyway. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, and for the audience, I think they wanted to show that the chaos that was, you know, surrounding oh. uh, Mandela's release. Yeah. They wanted to, to point, to paint South Africa in a negative image. So he said, oh, nah, we ain't going to let you do yeah. that. Because this was about that, that the, the skirmish. We don't even know what the skirmish was going on in Crossroads. Uh, no, we were we in Cape but- Town. But yeah. but you know what? Let me share this a personal thing too, because we we're before yeah, sure. we went out to the uh, before we went out to the city hall, Cape Town City Hall, and we knew that he was getting John Voss to prison. I think it, he was, and everybody was talking about it. Because right before that, I was watching him being released when he that famous picture where he where he's got the clenched fist and coming out of the, of the prison. And I was on the phone with Stevie and one of his friends out in London. We we're all three of us watching it on TV at the same time. Steve is telling me, well, he's in Cape Town. He's there with Mandela. He goes, what? And we're all watching it in real time. And, I, and all of a sudden, it dawned on me how powerful the media is, that this image is showing live around the world, and Mandela coming out. And then we went to a cafe, and I, I said, I've got to memorialize this event. So I said, this is my last piece of flesh that I'm eating, because back then I was just eating fish, a pescatarian. And, and they, I told the guy, and he brought out this oh, thing boy. called a prawn, and he was huge. He was, he could, he was lying in the plate. And he said, I told him, this is my last, you know, after that, no more flesh. And that, so I remember this, this particular, this particular tri- journey in my life, you know, with Mandela. So that's, so when people say, well, how long you been a vegetarian? It was 92. And that was it. That, that was, a, I wanted to have a marker, you know what I'm saying? Because all the stuff that you mentioned that we went through, people don't understand. And, and, and what Jeffy's telling, he's just barely scratching the surface. So he's had a lot to tell in the book. Oh, my goodness. I'm glad someone got fed on that trip because, you know, <laughs> yeah, thank you for that, Carl, that moment of fish and flesh and, you know, uh, but, you know, hey, you give it up, you, you you die for the moment, man. You know, when you're, when you're, as a cinematographer, you die for the moment. There's no time to eat. There's only a time to do the job. And um, I want to talk about the Isaac moment. I know we're uh, getting close to wrapping this up. Are we, Carl? No, go ahead. You, we got time. Well, I call it's 12 away from the top there. Go ahead, family. Go ahead. McDonald's is not new to chicken. 
So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. I call this a, the sip of uh, um, solidarity. And I wrote this morning, during my morning Bible study, I found myself reminiscing about my time in South Africa, particularly the period leading up to Nelson Mandela's release. I vividly recall an encounter with my tour guide, Isaac, during a brief stop in his village. As I reached for a refreshing bottle of Coca-Cola, Isaac declined when I offered to buy him one, opting instead to share mine. His request to drink from my bottle struck me struck me as uh, peculiar intently. I mean, despite having this his own, Isaac's desire to share mine seemed to carry a profound significance. As I reflect on that moment, uh, I'm still puzzled by this its true meaning. However, it became apparent that this simple act of sharing fostered a sense of connection and camaraderie among Isaac, his friends, and me. Through the significance, the significance remains. It remains. The memory of that encounter concludes to resonate, perhaps as a symbol of love or friendship that transcends cultural boundaries. You know, Carl, I I, I still can't figure that out. Why would this grown man, this young man, want to share a sip of my soda in front of all his friends, you know? And so uh, that was the moment, ladies and gentlemen, where I, you know, the love that 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 you embellish from a, a trip of this nature, you know, you you know, you have to get in the backwoods of people, you know. I mean, we could be on the forefront of all the information, but to me, it's it's getting down with the uh, getting, you know, knowing the people, you know, and that's what a cinematographer does, you know. He has to, uh, I guess, um, gain the respect and the trust of others. And uh, I remember, Carl, uh, I took a moment to take my finger and write and the, the uh, names of my family in the dirt. And I said, you know, I'll leave you here, family, because we're amongst family. And that sip was, uh, like I said, was a point of solidarity with his family. And that was the Isaac moment for me. Many of those things happened like that. So. Wow. Let me ask you this, yeah. though. Do your students know that, yeah. that that you were the first one to videotape Nelson Mandela? Have you, have you told uh, the story? Yeah. <laughs> no, I have not. I'm kind of a uh, Clarence Avon. I think that's his name. Mr. Avon was a backseat player behind the uh, the, the famous, uh, the richness of, what's it, Barry Gordy and all these famous people. Mr. Avon is one of my, you know, mentors. I said, man, I want to be just like you when I grow up. 
He was a backseat player guiding. And I've done that many, many times. I've opened many companies uh, on my own, but when I'm engaged with others, you know, I kind of take a backseat, meaning that, you know, my students when I work here at Jacksonville State University, we have a film program. Started that program from scratch in 2011, zero. And now it is a major. We have over 45 majors in that program. Uh, I steered that ship for almost 11 years by myself. One professor brought it from scratch. And so, no, I, I don't share those moments. I do say, hey, here's a, me and Nelson Mandela. And <laughs> Sally, no, I'm, I'm not going to say that. No, I'll keep it positive. Here's the deal. Uh, my room had, I call it the uh, wall of shame. And I have pictures of Matt Jackson, Whitney Houston, Angela Bassett, Sylvester Stallone. I mean, you name it. You know, I've been in their midst, Sydney Parkier. Uh, I go on and on and on. Della Reese, uh, Nelson Mandela. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, I try to keep it on a low key. But people talk, but I do. So I allow my reputation to stand forth and to hold me accountable. And that's what I teach my students. I teach them. I say, listen, guys. You can get the job. Fine. I'm not here to teach you everything, but what I am here to teach you is how to keep your job. Reputation and credit, that's all you got. And once you tarnish it, it follows you. So my students are catapulting from being uh, from zero within, when I say zero, you know, coming in with lack of knowledge. And within about, you know, two semesters, they're ready or the outside work. We've had many students who are working at uh, Marvel Studios, uh, things of that nature, and they say, hey, we want your students. I said, no, you just get your education and go to work. It'll be there. So uh, I'm very happy where I work. I love my job. I love my students. But there's a passion and a drive that, you know, I wake up every morning, every morning, and I'm on fire with work and with the Lord. That comes first. All right. That's good for you. Uh, Jeff, we've got to take a short break. When we come back, though, uh, we're going to wrap up. And tell us if there's been in demand because after that interview, because everybody was looking for you to get a copy of that tape. You want to hear Mandela's first words. Uh, six minutes away from the top of the hour family, 800-450-7876. If you got a question for Jeff, reach out to us. We'll take your calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. If you're in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL. Where information is power. And good morning once again, family. Minute after the top of the hour with our guest, Jeffrey Nichols. Jeffrey's an award-winning uh, cinematographer, video photographer, whatever label you want to put on him. He's one of the best in the business. He was there when we did the interview with Nelson Mandela. Before we get back to him, let's remind you, coming up momentarily, we're going to speak with attorney and Kichi Taifa. We're going to get a reparations update. So, uh, Jeff, before we let you go, though, first, anybody asking you trying to get a copy of that tape, the original interview with, with Mandela? I know you want to respond to something that uh, Darnell, our banking expert, mentioned as well well um and i hope i'm not out of bound here with people and it's just you know something i felt that god wanted me to say it says god's love is astounding this is why he did not create us with a robotic nature god is sovereign knowing nothing catches god god off guard he knew his creation had a serious flaw before he breathed life into adam now that is all knowing love at its best. Jesus was always on the cutting block for the flaw and future of man and his kind. Separation, hate, fear, lack of knowledge, 
is one of the most important keys. And I'm going to say that Satan uses. Uh, we should never forget man and his kind are broken. The first murderer slain his very own sibling. So, oh, Carl, um, and I just had to say that, amen. And here's a song that um, I wrote, but it's, I'm just going to give you a few phrases because I heard um, something on the intro to your um, radio station. Your station has talked about love. And here it goes. This is a song that says, what can love do? What can love do? It can keep us apart. What can love do if we make Jesus our heart? So, ladies and gentlemen, you know, spread love. Uh, don't allow yourself to get caught up in the mundane things of man and his kind. Because, you know, you have to understand that God has a plan for all of us. And his plan is to love on us, love on us, love on us. And Satan hates the love of God. So that's what you're seeing, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, technology and its vast uh, misuse, you know, color, lines, all that's been drawn. You know that because that's never going to stop if you think about it. First murderer kills his own brother. See, this has been going. But anyway, Carl, I want to leave that leave that on the table. I won't get to preaching here because that's what I do. And I, uh, you know, I am I am definitely a minister. I, I work with youth, uh, and uh, you know, my journey is deep, and God has put me there. And the Nelson Mandela trip is deeper, not deeper, but it has its deep moments. And I thank you for allowing me to uh, speak, Carl. And maybe we All can right. chop it up another time. It's really, thank you, Jeffrey. Thank you for sharing that, with, that information with us this morning. All right, family. Yes, Four minutes after the top of the hour, Jeffrey Nichols, as I mentioned, was the first one who did that. The film, the interview that we did with Nelson Mandela after Mandela got out, that was 34 years ago yesterday in uh, South Africa, in Cape Town, he was released from. Anyway, let's turn our attention now to attorney Nkichi Taifa, counselor. Good morning. Welcome back to the program. Good morning, Carl Nelson. Always thrilled to be uh, on the air with you. <laughs> Oh, I'd love to have you as well, because you, you just got back. Re, well, recently you went to a reparations conference in Ghana. Can you tell us how that went? Yeah, I just um, in November, there was a, a reparations conference, a convening, an international uh, convening in uh, Ghana to look at issues of reparations uh, continent-wide uh, and across the uh, diaspora. It brought together... Uh, uh, academics and scholars, civil society actors, stakeholders, and the like, um, to advance a continental initiative for repertory uh, justice. The theme was, um, let, let me say, building a united front to advance the cause of justice and the payment of reparations to Africans. And it, there was a very comprehensive um, uh, concept note that went along with that uh, conference that was very high in platitudes, but I must say, you know, tell no lies, play no easy victory. It appeared as if black folk, African-Americans from this country, appeared to be a little bit sidelined um, from the uh, conference. Although there was representation out there and there was uh, speakers, a couple of speakers uh, there, my colleague, Kim Howard and um, um, Ron, Dr. Ron Daniels, by and large, the sense of the convening was to really bring together uh, persons from the continent of Africa and those from the Caribbean nations, i.e. CARICOM, um, which is good in and of itself, but it must be recognized that we in this country are an integral part of the African diaspora as well. So 
Jewish representations of uh, representatives of black folks from um, from Europe, you know, just from uh, across the globe. But it, it really seemed like the central thrust was uh, unity, I guess you could say, between uh, continental Africans and uh, the Caribbean. But again, I say important in and of itself, but we really need collaboration, true collaboration with uh, the continent and the total of the diaspora. So how was it? Was there a feeling of, of everybody was on the same page? Did you leave that meeting feeling that way? McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Well, the concept note <laughs> um, uh, lay claim to everyone being on the uh, same uh, page. But, you know, it's always, the, the, we, we are never 100% on the same page because although we all were um, um, subject to the same mass Terrorism, I guess you could say what I call the Holocaust of um, enslavement, it manifests differently in different areas wherever we might be. Uh, we all came over on the second boat, but we dropped off in different places. I just came back call from Brazil. And Brazil, Rio, uh, Rio has the largest slave port in the Americas uh, during the transatlantic slave trade. I call it the transatlantic war machine. Uh, and responsible for the trafficking of about 5 million enslaved uh, people. And just recently, uh, the Bank of Brazil um, uh, acknowledged its funding of the transatlantic slave trade, that it played an active role in prolonging uh, the abolition process to promote its own uh, interests. So they have apologized for that. But again, have they paid up? No. Conversations about reparations continue. The same as in uh, the Caribbean. There, you know, royalty has visited many of the different uh, Caribbean uh, nations. Um, talking about the issue, apologizing, but have there been any concrete um, measures? No. Even in this country, and I do want to give an update on what's happening in this country uh, as well. There's a lot going on in this country. It's sweeping the reparations is sweeping the country like wildfire. Uh, but Largely, by and large, particularly on the federal level, we have absolute um, law jail. So what we do need is collaboration. We need unification. And we need to realize that uh, we are all subject to uh, the same harm, uh, the same um, uh, what we call, what the United Nations has called, crime against humanity. 
All right, before we go to, to what's going on here nationally, when you were in uh, Ghana, was there any talk of that the Africans deserve reparations because there was a brain drain? If you look at all the, 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 all the, the things that we have created on, just in this country alone, black people, those black people oh. could have stayed in Africa and probably done the same. You know, but it, uh, is, there, is there any talk of compensation for them, for, for, the, for the, the, uh, our brothers and sisters who were, who were snatched by the the uh, the oppressors and, and bought here. Is there any? Do they feel they deserve reparations as well? I guess that's where I'm going. Well, yes. Again, as I said, the concept note that brought about the convening in a fraud. They talked about the tripartite crimes of the transatlantic slave trade, slavery, and colonialism, all having established a global system that designated Black Africa as what they called a sacrifice zone for the benefit of the rest of the world. And it talked about the system in, in, in imposing extractive infrastructure, dispossessing local populations, destroying indigenous um, systems of production, um, uh, you know, the, the, the slave trade and, and all, of, uh, all of the above, all for the benefit, not of Africa, not of all of us in the diaspora, but to what is called the global um, north. And also it said that Africans from the continent as well as Afro-descendants that's the term primarily used uh, internationally, remain the only major group for whom reparations have been denied for crimes against uh, humanities. And so, uh, yes, there absolutely was that recognition that reparations are owed and are due. What the, the um, a challenge is, is forcing uh, the Western world to acknowledge that and to um, uh, provide redress, amends. Which you know, you know what, uh, and Kichi, some people say that it seems like we're begging white folks for for money that that we deserve that we should get, but we're we're like beggars. That that's that's, well, that's what no, I've heard. We're not begging for nothing. We only talking about what has accrued to every other oppressed people uh, in, in in the world, and also after the abolition of slavery, whether it was in the United States, whether it was in Britain, whether it was in Haiti, after the abolition of, of, of enslavement, reparations were in fact paid. They just weren't paid to us. So we're not begging for anything. They were paid to the former white slaveholders. And guess what? Something I only learned not too long ago was that in Britain, a loan was taken out to be able to pay those white former enslavers for their release of us. And that loan was only paid off it was not paid off until the year 2015. So we're not talking about something in ancient history. We're not talking about begging anybody for a handout. We're talking about a matter of justice. I'm an attorney. We're talking about a matter of human rights. And until the world recognizes that we too, okay, must be accorded what everybody else is accorded, um, we're going to continue to be under the foot of everyone. So it's not begging, but I will say this. We don't need to wait um, uh, for the enemy, I guess you could say, to do what is right. We need to start now with ourselves and um, unifying ourselves, learning our history, fighting against all these other things out there, uh, uh, banned books, uh, against the, uh, um, um, you know, the, you know, all the stuff that's going on against voting rights, all of those things, all of that is part and parcel, I feel, of a comprehensive 
reparations demand because it's not just for the enslavement era, but it's for those continuing legacies um, um, of the enslavement era, connecting the dots between what's happening today, what happened yesterday, and the expressive links between those. So, you know, there's a lot going on, and part of it is the importance of educating ourselves so that we can make these claims that we are making. All right, we're coming up on a break, but I've got to ask, ask you this. Uh, since we're talking about just not the Atlantic slave trade, are you also referring to what, what the, the, they drop drugs in our community? Do, do those the folks who were affected by it, do they deserve reparations? That kind of a, uh, issue, the, the police brutality that some of our, yeah. our family members went through, do, do they deserve reparations for that? I'll let you talk about that when we get back. As I mentioned, we got to take a short break. It's 14 minutes after the top of the Our Family. You want to join this conversation about reparations, you want to learn the latest about reparations, reach out to us at 800-450-7876. Your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB and also in the DMV on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL where information is power. And good morning once again, family. 21 minutes after the top of the hour, our guest in Kishi Taifa. She's an attorney. She's also an author. And she's also a reparation advocate. And before we left for the break, I was asking a question about the request for reparations. Is it just solely about chattel slavery or is it, is it about or is it about Jim Crow, the era that we went through? Or is, is it about the drugs they dropped into our community, the crack cocaine and, and the residual effects of that? Or is it about the, the police brutality that some of our folks went through? What are we asking for? Is it just chattel slavery or are those issues also in contention? Absolute excellent um, question that you raised. I submit that reparations is the only policy that comprehensively addresses the very crux of institutional and structural racism and inequality, the um, harms from government and related policies of the past, enslavement, denial of self-determination, convict leasing, black codes, homestead act, Jim Crow apartheid, lynchings, massacres, gerrymandering, uh, uh, denial of, of benefits on GI Bill, the uh, FHA, redlining, false and inferior education, disparate health care, cultural assault, mass incarceration, you hit it on the nail. This is just a name but a few. All of these uh, things still manifest today in nearly every area of life, including the five injury areas um, that was identified by NCOVA, the National Coalition of Blacks and Reparations in America, um, our Legal Strategies Commission, again, 25 years ago, of health, education, wealth and poverty, criminal punishment, and peoplehood. So, yes, one drugs is part and parcel of all of that. You see, Carl, I always say my mantra is that the harms from the enslavement era and its living legacy, the harms were multifaceted. Thus, the remedies must be multifaceted as well. And that a reparation settlement, and I say settlement because no amount of, um, um, uh, of, of money or, or policies or practices can ever fully account for what we went through. So a reparation settlement can be fashioned in as many ways as necessary to equitably address the incalculable injuries that have been sustained as a result of this country's um, crime against 
our humanity. And I will say, I will be remiss if I did not stress that reparatory justice is more than the mere ascertainment of a dollar figure and the cutting of a check. Now, again, I am one who does definitely believe that monetary damages is an essential part of a reparations um, settlement. But, uh, uh, again, money is here today and gone uh, tomorrow. It's important. It's part of repertory justice, but it's not the end um, all. So I just wanted to say that. And, actually, California is being uh, confronted with this very issue right now. When we talk, if I could talk a little bit about some updates, um, most folks know that um, over the past two years, the state of California, the first state to introduce and pass a bill to establish um, a task force to study the issue of reparations and make recommendations, completed its, its work last June with over a thousand pages spanning two reports. And just last week on January 31st, they submitted a compendium of 14 bills to the California state legislature for consideration based on the voluminous findings in their uh, report. And it, it was submitted to the, the I mean, the, the California Legislative Black Caucus 2024 Reparations Priority Bill Package, that's what it's called. But it's come under uh, 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 criticism for its exclusion of cash payments in its suite of, of bills. Um, again, the report, you know, talked about Comprehensive, the whole comprehensive approach that you and I just talked about, but cash payments was not part of the suite um, uh, of bills. The caucus's chairwoman, she said um, something to the fact that while many may only associate direct cash payments with reparations, she says that the true meaning of the word, and that is correct, repair, involves much more. Uh, she said, and I do agree, that a comprehensive approach to dismantling uh, the legacy of slavery and, and systemic uh, racism is what is important. And their legislative package tackled a wide range of issues from criminal justice reform to property rights to education, civil rights, and food justice. So I do feel that we need to not be scared about the issue of cash payments, okay? Uh, and we need to begin to take the bull uh, by the horn and truly look at that. Just what is, uh, what could be a settlement of the monumental harm um, and a monetary basis in addition to all of the very, very necessary changes in policies and practices um, um, uh, that must come about for what I consider comprehensive reparations? All right, we got some folks want to talk to you, uh, Attorney Nkichi Taifa, at 26 after the top there. Let's go first with Charles. He's on line two. He's calling from Baltimore. Good morning, Charles. You're on with Attorney Taifa. Yes, how you doing? Hello, Charles from Baltimore. Uh, I'm doing great. Well, I'm, I'm going to ask you, um, there are many groups that already got reparations. Would you be able to name the groups? And what was the qualifier? that um, gave them reparations? How did they actually qualify for reparations? And what are we missing to, um, for us to qualify? Thank All you. right, good question. Thanks, Charles. Well, one Counselor? of the things we're missing is a very unified demand for it. Um, in this country specifically, well, I've only, I already spoke to the white folks that got reparations, um, the former enslavers after the enslavement era. But in 19, 
1988, Japanese Americans uh, received reparations. They received $20,000 each Japanese American detention camp survivor. Um, a trust fund to be used to educate Americans about their sufferings during World War II. They received a formal apology from the United States government, and they received um, uh, uh, those who resisted detention camp internment um, received a pardon. Um, some Japanese Americans are um, very strong allies of black reparations. And they have uh, told me specifically that their inspiration to fight and struggle for their reparations came from the civil rights and black power uh, movements. And specifically, they talk about uh, Malcolm X, and they talk about the Republican New Africa, and they talk about um, these demands that they learned from our struggles for their struggles. Then you also have the Native American um, um, Claims um, Act, which gave, I mean, we're talking about a pittance, I mean, you know. Uh, but there was some acknowledgement of, of uh, redress and amends to Native uh, peoples, um, and, um, you know, they received um, some, some return of land. Um, they received um, – the, the, they have specific things that are part of their, um, uh, their rep- repertory uh, package, although, again, nowhere near what any of that should be. One of the things that I think that we're missing is unification. We're divided among each, each other. We're fighting each other. Uh, we're um, arguing over this and um, over that and failing to uh, realize that until we really come together as a united community, a strong fist with all the fingers um, hanging together, we will continue to be divided, and um, our just claims will continue to be ignored. All right, good point. We got a bunch of folks who want to talk to you and Kishi Taifa at 30 minutes after the top. Let's go to London. Paul's calling us from the UK. He's on line five. Good morning, Paul. You're on with Enkichi Taifa. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning their chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Grand rising, Baba. Crazy. Thank you for taking my call and good good morning to your guest. Grand rising. I just want to. Grand rising. Um, you, you're a lawyer. What we call the lawyer, you call the attorney. Um, so I guess you're, in a, you're at an advantage because you've studied law, you practice law. So you, no one needs to tell you um, why law is important. You, you know, I, I've also studied law. But one of the things I found very frustrating is this: when, when people who, like Brother Quasi said. He said the people who push back against uh, reparations, it's begging, uh, it's a handout, et cetera, et cetera. I find it that very frustrating because to me, it, it kind of demonstrates, I say this with a heavy heart, 
a real level of ignorance because, frankly, they just don't understand what law is. Um, now, in your experience, what I'm asking is, in your experience, how how do you feel about that? How do you feel about the pushback? I mean, I, I you obviously know it comes under international law. You are, you obviously understand it's a remedy, and there's a protocol to it. But how do you feel about the the level of ignorance um, when you're trying to prov- you're trying to explain to people and educate people that it's a remedy in law, in international law? And just like any other remedy, if you're burgled, if you're robbed, it, 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 that's what it is. And I don't under, I really understand people who push back against the remedy. It don't make no sense to me. I, that that uh, There's a question in there. I hope you get it. All right. Thanks, Paul. Um, the caller is absolutely correct. And thank you so very much for your uh, perspective. And, you know, one of the uh, issues is that we have been totally and completely, not just uneducated, but miseducated. Cardi G. Woodson's this Black History Month, you know, talked about the miseducation of the Negro. We have been deliberately and intentionally miseducated, uneducated, and we don't know, by and large, many of us, of our rights under international law or that they even are rights. We don't know the precedents for reparations across the um, uh, the country and across the world. I'm just recently finding out within the last number of years about the reparations that were paid to white folks and not to us, uh, 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 yes, the elimination of, of slavery, that Haiti um, uh, was required uh, uh, to be able to maintain their freedom and their independence. They were required, they were forced to pay reparations to, um, uh, to France. And those reparation payments to the descendants of white slave owners continued all the way up down through the 1940s. I mean, this is not ancient uh, history. Um, so one of the things is that we, we need to learn our history. We need to learn and understand that what we're saying is nothing new or novel or nothing that um, it's not old, but that there is, in fact, sound precedent internationally, globally, as well as domestically. Um, uh, for this right. I will say one more thing. Um, whenever there are advancements in our movement, whenever we are moving forward, there's always going to be some type of backlash um, from the power structure, from the uh, the enemy, okay? And that is what uh, uh, we experienced after the murder of uh, George Floyd and people were rising up and there were more talks about equality, equity, and reparations and and the like. And the backlash is the banning of books. The backlash is uh, all these bills, you know, denying uh, uh, the right to, to vote. The backlash is the onslaught against uh, critical race uh, theory. I mean, it's just, it seems like every time we move a few steps forward, we're, um, we're spiral uh, backwards. And we need to be able to be unified so we can um, um, be able to offset that. So thank you for your questions, and um, yeah. 
That's an astute uh, observation there, uh, uh, Sister Nkichi. But hold that thought right there. Uh, Bob in Buffalo has got a question for you as well. But we got to take a quick break here at uh, 26 minutes away from the top of the hour. Family will be back in four minutes. You got a question about reparations? Reach out to our guest. Her name is Nkichi Taifa. She's an attorney. She's also an author as well. And uh, she's our guest right now. So if you got the question, hit us up. We'll be back in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. Also on the DMV around FM 95.9 and AM 1450. W-O-L, where information is power. And good morning once again, family. 21 minutes away from the top of the hour with our guest, Attorney Nkichi Taifa. And we're talking about reparations. Before we go back to her, though, let me just remind you, coming up in the next few days, you're going to hear from the President General of the Universal African People's Organization. That would be one Zaki Baruti out of St. Louis. Also, metaphysician Dr. B will be with us. And chemitologist Tony Brad will also join us. So, if you're in Baltimore, make sure your radio's locked in tight on 1010 WOLB. If you're in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL. So I mentioned Bob in Buffalo has a question for Enkichi Taifa. Bob's on line one. Good morning, Bob. Wait, 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 Bob. Bob in Buffalo, before you speak, let me just say that since you're in Buffalo, I want to make sure I get this in, that New York is the third state to pass a bill establishing a task force to study and make recommendations uh, for uh, reparations. And I was at that bill signing, um, I think it was la- last month. I mean, New York, we had one of the most active slave markets in America on Wall Street, New York, where the African burial ground, over 15,000 formerly enslaved Africans was unearthed. New York, where Central Park was built on the land of displaced black folks. And now Bob and Buffalo, we know about the mass secure there. So, New York, it is time, and I am glad that they are now also joining many other jurisdictions in establishing a task force to study and develop reparations proposals. So, go on, Bob. I just wanted to get my little New York feel up in there. Yeah, blessed love. Remember those from Seneca Village. Uh, Blessed love, uh, family. Uh, I woke up this morning with my mind stayed on freedom. And reparations is about freedom, and it's about true and complete freedom which addresses past, present, and future realities. My question is, I hear most of the conversation about what has happened in the past. Sometimes people bring it up into the present, but people very seldom talk about the future. As long as we remain under the jurisdiction of those oppressors, those who have done what they did, then we do not have true and complete freedom. So I think, you know, my question is, should we accept jurisdiction being still under the jurisdiction of those who have enslaved us? And besides your book and the debt, can you suggest some other texts that we might be able to value our research and learn more about the condition that we're in and how to get out of that condition? You know, you really sparked something in my mind when you said a lot of times we talk about the past and the present. We don't really I talk a lot about the future. You're absolutely correct because we really need to visualize and envision just what can reparations look like. And one of the things that most folks don't talk about at all, I do mention it in in, in my book in uh, Olufemi um, Taiwo um, academic, um, when he talks about climate um, reparations, he mentioned something, some stuff that we need to look at in terms of the future. But one of the things that it's largely absent from um, traditional discussions about reparations as the issue of self-determination. And I say the future because what 
is it that we as a people want? And by that I mean back during the enslavement era, General Sherman sat down with those 20-so or 40-so black uh, ministers and said, what do you all want? And they said, we want land. And they said, well, do you want to stay amongst the white folks? You want this this land? They say, no. We want to go off to a separate, we want to be by ourselves and build and develop. And I submit, and many others submit that, for the future, that option should still be there as a part of self-determination. Some other people feel part of self-determination rightfully should be repatriation, being able to go back to the continent of Africa, not swimming in the ocean naked, but with reparations um, to be able to integrate more fully into that culture which we had lost. Then there are still others who really say, you know, we built this country. You know, they still they are Americans and want the full rights of American citizenship and strive to make a multiracial democracy real. Well, to be able to effectuate that for the future, there needs to be changes in policies and, and practices to make that a reality. And for those of us who want to establish an independent black nation state on this soil as part of the future vision of reparations, that should be their prerogative as well. So I just want to say that self-determination, to me, relates to the past, present, but definitely part of what many people want in the future, the right to determine for ourselves what we want a political future to look like. So I appreciate My sister, could I ask you a question? How, how dangerous is it for us to accept being under the jurisdiction of those who oppressed us, to continue to be under their jurisdiction? How dangerous is that? Well, we're seeing the dangers right now <laughs> with all of the I'm massacres saying, that's going on, with, with all of the cutbacks and rollbacks and what we thought were rights and all like that. But, again, but I cannot accept- speak for what all black people feel that they should have or want. But there are those four options, those options that I spoke of that can lead to um, a much more fruitful future, in my humble opinion. We've been taught to accept being under their jurisdiction as freedom. To me, that's insane. To me, that's insane. How can you accept being free, being under the jurisdiction of those who who have wronged you? That's like Jews still being under the jurisdiction of Hitler or Germany. How can we accept this being under other people's jurisdiction as freedom? I'll hang up and listen. It just doesn't make sense to me. So maybe you can help me make it make sense. Maybe yeah, you can no, help me well, I appreciate everything that you said. And on my book, um, Reparations on Fire, How and Why It's Spreading Across America, speaks to some of that. I included in that book the original text of a book I co-authored with um, Attorney Chokwe Lumumba, brother of President Mario Bedelli of the Republic of New Africa, uh, back in 1987, uh, called, um, uh, it was called Reparations Yes, the Legal and Political Reasons Why New Africans, I forgot the title, the long, long ass title, but it talked about the issue of reparations and, uh, and self-determination. And I invite everyone to look at my book, Reparations on Fire, How and Why It's Spreading South America. But some of these issues that you don't hear as part of the normal um, um, conversation when we deal with reparations, particularly reparations with respect to black people in this um, country. All right, 14. Thank you for your work, sis. Thank you for your work. Thanks, Bob. God bless. Thanks for your call. 14 away from the top. One of our Nigerian brothers has a question for you, and I'll read it for you, uh, Counselor. It says, is reparations struggle only about money? 
And he goes on to say, what about reparations for culture, heritage, language, dignity, et cetera? How would we address the, these issues? Yeah, thank you very much. And I, I, I hope I made plain that reparations are not just about money. It's about all of these things that the caller just said and just uh, raised. And um, the challenge is um, uh, uh, articulating all that into policies and practices that can change. And also, there's also a big challenge in differentiating between what is reparations and what is ordinary public policy that should be happening anyway and according, uh, afforded to um, everyone. So we have some challenges in front of us. No, it's not just about a check. It's about all those things. And also, it is a recognition, in my estimation, that we will never be wholly and fully um, compensated for that. But we need to come as close to that as possible, as, you know, as we can. And I just want to say, because I know we don't have too much more time left, reparations is, in fact, spreading across the country like fire. There are task forces and commissions ranging from Asheville, North Carolina, South State, St. Paul, Minnesota, Evanston, Illinois, Detroit, Michigan, Amherst, Massachusetts, Burlington, Vermont, um, Georgia, Kansas City, Greenbelt, Maryland, Boston, Massachusetts, Washington, D.C., St. Louis, Missouri, South Oklahoma, Philadelphia, the list goes on and on. I mean, it is an issue whose, um, uh, whose time has come. And, yeah, I just, wanted, I just wanted to say that. It's a wonderful time to be in the forefront of the reparations movement. We need to keep our eyes on the uh, prize and don't let them backlash. Uh, which is here right now, okay, um, um, you know, to tear us asunder. All right, 12 away from the top. If we let you go, though, are you optimistic? Because there was a report coming out that people, black folks, uh, uh, you know, feel we deserve reparations, but they're not optimistic that we're going to get reparations. I'll let you leave us with that. How do you feel? Okay, so thank you for that um, last uh, question. I would say the quest for reparations for the descendants of African people enslaved in the U.S. is a legitimate concept that is rapidly gaining acceptance uh, in the mainstream. Carl, it is a new day with new energies and new possibilities. Reparations for African people in this country, it is no longer a stretch of the imagination. It's no longer seen as an unobtainable goal, but it is very likely a reality. And if we keep our eyes on the prize, it is, in fact, achievable in our lifetime. So that's the message I want to leave with folks, a message of hope and inspiration and uh, uh, forever continuing the fight and the struggle for our just do, repertory justice. All righty. Thank you, Attorney and Kichi Tanya. And thanks for the work that you do, because you put you put in the work. You really put in the work. Folks don't just, just don't know, but I know that you really put in on the work on reparations. So thank you for sharing and giving us an update this morning. Thank you so much. And if I could just leave my website for people who want more information, sure. they can go to www.reparationeducationproject.org. And that's reparation without the F. Reparation Education project.org. There's a, a, a video of my TEDx talk on reparations, an issue of time has come in there, and loads and loads of uh, resources and information and material about the reparations movement. Thank you so much, Carl Nelson. And before you go, your, your latest book, how, the title, how can they get a copy? Yes, the latest book is Reparations on Fire, 
tell them why you're spreading across America. If you want to buy black, you can get it from AALBC.com. That's the African American Literature Book Club, AALBC.com. Of course, you can go to, you know, Amazon. They'll, they'll have it to you in an hour. <laughs> no, let me stop. Um, uh, but, yeah, so it's it just Google it up, Reparations on Fire. It'll come up somewhere, and please um, get it and read it and share. Thank you. All right. Thank you, and Keisha Taifa, and thank you for again. I thank you again because you put you actually. She's this family. She's one of the ladies working on reparations, actually putting in the work. When I say putting in the work, she's putting in the work. So I just want to thank you and thank you for the information you shared with us this morning. And thank you for this platform. I appreciate it. All right, that's in Keisha Taifa. Let me bring in Kevin here now. We got nine minutes away from the top. Yeah, Kevin, hey. you know the Super Bowl again. Good morning. Super Bowl was yesterday, right. and some people are saying that we should. Today should be an, a holiday. They think we should have a federal <laughs> holiday because, you know, whatever took place uh, on Sunday. I want to get your there, thoughts on that. There are some people who act like it's a holiday, but uh, I've got the great Charles Butler here who is going to give me a retraction. Apparently, the uh, show was live. Hey, Charles Butler. This is Charles Butler, everybody. Hey, Charles. How you doing? The show actually was live. So on social media, there are there were a plethora of artists that were there that was that was in real time right. on their social media with the uh, halftime show playing. And they were texting you. Not texting me. You could see <laughs> them, like, literally on just their social media right. that was um, in real time that posted about the show um, that had videos in their story. So it definitely was um, in real time. It was live. It looked like it was uh, well edited and everything. But it was you- actually even in 4K. I was very impressed with the production. This was one of the best production video-wise that we've ever seen of the Super Bowl. Thank you, Charles. You're he, welcome. He's so, so, so before Charles goes, though, uh, Charles, how did you rate it? Because some people said he, he wasn't all that, and uh, some people were raving about it. How do you see it? I thought that the show was phenomenal. I love the, the uh, fr- even from the, the outfit changes that were, um, a lot of people didn't notice that one of the outfits that he had on the back was, like, cut out. So everything to me was phenomenal. Yeah, he changed um, clothes skates, so quickly. Yeah. Yes. I so I, I even was, I saw the person who made the clothes who was an African-American, which is great that we kept it within the in, family. In, in, in the family, amen. <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes, you know, they go to these big designers and stuff to to do a lot of the clothing, but they kept it, he kept it um, with a brother that did all of his outfits. And he cut the back out. It's like a vest uh-huh. that he posted on his thing. So that's how he was easily able to change so quickly. Wow. So it, it, it I thought the show overall was great. I loved it. Um the band was great. I loved the changes to the music. And I also loved the um tribute he did to Aaron Spears, his drummer who's from Washington DC who passed away. Who passed away, yeah. Yeah, he put his drum set up there. Um the whole set. I don't think a lot of people paid attention to that. No, that, that was, was a Aaron's drum set. Drum that set. was Aaron's drum set that was up there. So it has sentimental values to me as well. Wow. There you go, girl. Yeah, I did not know that. Thanks, Charles. Thanks for sharing that with us. Hey, Kevin, before we go, just just flat out of time, uh, while we were watching the Super Bowl, you know, we've got listeners in Africa, and they were telling us, well, they were watching soccer, the African Cup of Nations, which is uh, all the African nations. Every four years, they have this tournament, and it was won by the Ivory Coast, Cote d'Ivoire. They beat Nigeria 2-1, to one, and they, it happened, as I mentioned, it, it's like the Olympics of soccer on the African continent. So the African listeners just wanted us to know that family. That's what's going on while we were watching Kansas City beat the Niners 24 
25-22 in overtime in the Super Bowl. But having said that, Kevin, we're flat out of time. We've got to get out of here. Yes, thank sir. you. Thank you. Uh, thank you, and thanks, Charles, as well. Family, we're done for the day. Stay strong. Stay positive. Please stay healthy. We'll see you tomorrow morning, 6 o'clock, right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. If you're in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power. 